Yeah, for example, I could make an eight foot long by two foot tall enclosure, which is more than long enough for the animal. That's, in my opinion, not appropriate for a carpal python. The, fun the function to support the natural behaviours isn't there. And I believe that's what we need to be pushing and supporting more than enclosure size. It's easier to achieve that with enclosure size. And I keep in big enclosures, but it's not a case of, well, my enclosure is bigger, therefore it's better. Welcome back to the Animals at Home podcast. My name is Dylan Perrin, and thank you so much for tuning in today. Today, I'm speaking with Damien Mackay, who runs the company Copperhead Customs out of Australia. Copperhead Customs is an enclosure design company. He mainly works on custom backgrounds. And honestly, when you look at his Instagram page, it's jaw-dropping. His, his business only started a couple of years ago and is really starting to boom just because of how incredible his craftsmanship and his workmanship is. In this episode, we, we really cover a lot here. There are parts of this episode that are a response to the episode I did back with Chris from Copperhead Reptilia, another Copperhead account. That was episode number 177. So Damien has a few points that he wants to kind of add on to that conversation. We also discuss how he builds his backgrounds, how he actually goes about designing an enclosure. So if you're someone who's about to create or build a new enclosure, not necessarily build one, but put an enclosure together as far as furnishing goes and enrichment goes, this will be a very good episode for you because we lay out the fundamentals that you need to have in an enclosure and then how to go about setting up the enclosure so it's functional for the species you keep. So this is a very practical episode and I think many of you will find it very useful. We jumped into the minimum enclosure design discussion. We talked about Facebook and how poor we are at communicating and how maybe we can make our presence a little bit more positive. We discuss how to get kids involved in the hobby without forcing them to get into a, you know, a thousand dollar or thousands of dollars zoo level exhibit. Is it possible to get kids on the right path without intimidating them, intimidating them with some large project? We covered so much and actually there was so much to cover. We decided to start the episode 30 minutes early, which meant we were bumping it back or bumping it to 6.30 a.m. Damien's time, which shows you the dedication he has to this conversation. So I think I'll just leave it at that. Let's jump into the episode. Enjoy. Awesome. Well, Damien, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, super excited to chat with you. You have a, a beautiful Instagram page with, with Copperhead Customs, the, the enclosures that you're building, and you've done some really cool videos. And I, it, your page is one of those pages where if you're a reptile keeper, you just look and you just end up scrolling for, until you hit the bottom because you just want to look at every page. And so we're going to get into, you know, DIY building and how to do this properly and efficiently and, and, and all that. But maybe we'll quickly just lay a background for people. I'm sure maybe even just by the, you saying hello, people will recognize you're probably from Australia. But just give us yep. a quick background and then we'll, we'll get into the nitty gritty. All right. So I started keeping reptiles when I was 10 years old. So that was 1998. And... I got into it because I had a teacher at primary school that was our environmental studies teacher and he would bring his snakes in and I must have started pestering my parents because <laughs> eventually they, they caved and I got my first snake, which he's still alive. He's still with us today. He's right next to me. He's 25 years old this year and he's a Darwin carp python. That's awesome. Do you remember what kind of, what species your teacher was bringing in? Uh, I believe he had a black-headed python and children's pythons. Okay. So that was enough to get you hooked. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. And like we had this program at school called uh, Bright Sparks, and it, they do all sorts of different workshops from like 
robotics and all this different stuff. They wouldn't even ask the question when it came to nature and reptile stuff. They just pull me from class and send me straight there. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's awesome. But yeah, I, I was very lucky in that aspect. And unfortunately, I haven't been able to reconnect with that teacher. I've tried to find him online, but um, yeah, definitely changed my life. And then, yeah, my parents took me to a breeder by the name of Russell Grant. And he's he I have actually reconnected with. He is now a green tree python breeder. Um, but I remember going to his property and he had this big shed out the back and we walked out there and he just, both walls, one covered in enclosures, one covered in baby racks. And he had everything from scrub pythons right up to like jungle carpets and, and darwins. And I remember him walking along and he pulled a bin out and it had jungle carpets and it was like machine gun fire. There's just all these little mouths just bah, 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 bah. and uh, he's like, yeah, maybe not that one for your first match <laughs> <laughs> and then put it back. And then he got to the Darwins and he had a few that was sort of striking. And then he, he waved his hand over the bin and my boy was the only one that didn't strike. He's like, yeah, I think that's a good choice. <laughs> so um, yeah, I went home with him. My dad built a the first enclosure, which I think would have been about a uh, probably a three foot by two foot by two foot. And um, now back then, it's not like today with our nice uh, luminized products and mm-hmm. <laughs> and all the rest of it. We were keeping with a standard what was referred to as a party globe. So it was a light bulb that was painted blue. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Classic. And that, that's how we kept. And the the enclosure, it was top opening. Uh, my dad, he built a shelf into it. And he disguised the shelf with a branch that sort of came up and, and covered the front of the shelf. And we did a lot of camping and, and four-wheel driving. And I remember he built a unit for the back of the four-wheel drive with drawers and stuff. And he had some of the marine carpet left over. So it was marine carpet on the bottom. <laughs> And whenever the the snake messed the carpet, take it outside, hit it with the pressure washer. And I kept like that for quite a few years before I had money to upgrade. And that's something we're going to talk about because listening back on a few of the podcasts with with Chris and with the guys from Project Herpeticulture, they mentioned a few things which I get what they're saying, but I don't entirely agree with. Mm -hmm. Um, and guys, if you're listening, don't think we don't that you that we don't think that you're into natural keeping. Like we don't think you're the enemy. It's okay. Mm-hmm. So I know there's been a few comments made of, about not realizing what was going to be said and and whatnot. And it's not that these these discussions they need to be had. Uh, yeah, of course. Because if they don't, we're not going to move forward. We're not going to have increased standards in the right way. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's how we started. And I had that snake for 20 years before getting another one. Wow. That's amazing. So you must have just recently started adding to that collection then. Yeah. Yeah. So 
probably in the last three years. Okay. What got you back and, in? Uh, so well, life, life happens. You go through high school and I moved into state for a while. And luckily my parents were kind enough to look after my snake at the time. And um, when I got back, I think I saw a video on YouTube from Cam's Custom Backgrounds. Mm. And he's another Australian keeper. He doesn't do much anymore, but he was building a lot of custom backgrounds. And the funny thing was I was very heavily into Warhammer and Dungeons and Dragons mm. at the time. And with that, you make a lot of your own terrain pieces. And it's the exact same techniques as he was using. And I was like, huh, I can do that, but on a bigger scale. So at that point, I was keeping it at four by two by two. And I decided I wanted to make a background for it. So I made my first background, posted pictures. I changed that setup about four times in two months <laughs> and um, attempted a water feature, which flooded the system, which wasn't <laughs> fantastic. Everyone's first water feature always floods the system. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So once I posted pictures, I started getting a lot of attention. And that's the other thing. I didn't get involved in the reptile community for those first 20 years right like not at all i didn't have other friends that kept reptiles i didn't talk to anyone about reptiles and that's probably why i had the one snake for so long mm -hmm. but i think it's also the reason that i've got a 25 year old animal yeah because i didn't get tricked into thinking that you need to feed every second day or anything like that. We did what the breeder told us to do. And like we went on a three month holiday. We drove from Melbourne to Darwin through the center of Australia and lived out of tents for three months. And we were like, well, what do we do? He's like, put fresh bulbs in, feed them two weeks before you go and put a big bowl of water in. Yeah. And that's what we did and came back and he was perfectly fine. Yeah. So, yeah, once I started getting the attention online, I joined a few groups and put on, put some pictures up. And the next thing I knew, I had people reaching out, oh, could you make me one? I was like, okay, I guess so. <laughs> didn't know, did not know what to charge whatsoever. Um, so I made one for someone, post pictures of that, and it just spiraled. My original idea for the business, well, it wasn't really a business. It was just a bit of pocket money was to buy secondhand enclosures, refurbish them, and flip them. Mm -hmm. That's a cool idea. But it's, yeah, it spirals so quickly that, that that never eventuated. Yeah, yeah. You can't you can't find enough cust or uh, use secondhand enclosures probably. You just need to kind of build your own, I guess. Yeah, I did not expect it to grow as quick as it did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's funny listening to you talk because I have a very similar story about my journey through herpeticulture is you know, I got my first crested gecko and then it was a massive gap of time. I think it was, I think it was not 20 years, but probably 15 years or, or 12 or 13 years before I got my second one. But during that first 10 or 12, whatever years it was, I did not interact with the community at all. It was just, I just fed my crested gecko. I didn't go on any forums or anything or any, any of that. It was completely 
out of my life. So there's a weird thing where you can keep a reptile, but then not be part of the herpetoculture community. There's probably a ton of people. I mean, how many people are keeping reptiles right now that have never listened to this podcast or gone on YouTube or gone on Facebook? There's like millions of people like that. It's, 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 it's weird to think about. Yeah, I think especially a lot of the more experienced keepers and it is a shame, but I can see why it happens. They stay out of all of the Facebook groups because mm-hmm. they don't want to argue with people that and be told wrong by people that they have been keeping two minutes when they're like, hang on, I've been keeping for 20 years. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, that's also creating a situation where new keepers are struggling to do proper research and get information. And I think I've got an idea for a solution for that, and we'll talk about that at the end. But I think it's important, like I learned from a breeder, I have my success because of being able to ask the breeder that I got my snake from what we needed to do. Mm-hmm. At one point, my guy, he stopped eating. So we we were feeding mice, got them onto rats, and then being the early 2000s, late 90s, I made the mistake of live feeding. And he he ate the mouse, loved it. I was like, okay, back on the rats. No, wouldn't eat rats. He's like, I've had gourmet now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I, I don't want this frozen frozen meal. And we could not get him back on the rats. He was, we were breeding mice because he would eat four mice in a sitting. Yeah. And we messaged the breeder, what do we do? He was like, offer him. If he doesn't take it, make him wait. Yeah. Well, he went just under 12 months. <laughs> I believe that. My carpet python does the same thing. It's like every December, he's like, I'm not doing rats anymore. And then I, I normally won't. I, I'll feed him some chicks eventually. But I, but now I'm kind of getting into the habit of waiting. But but that's what experience tells you, right? You don't just run out and start force feeding it because he didn't eat two weeks ago. You know, you just be patient. Yeah. And so what I was saying about the Facebook groups and people not being able to learn, I've seen people, oh, my snake hasn't eaten in two weeks. I'm going to take it to the vet. Mm-hmm. I've seen people have go as far as having their animals tube fed after three months of not eating. Yeah. Which is insane to me. It's insane that a vet would even do that, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, People going, oh, I've been told my snake's underweight. It's like, we don't even know what the standard weight is. Yeah. How can an animal be underweight when we don't have a a baseline? Yeah, exactly. it, It just doesn't make sense. And... Yeah, so he he just said, like, don't offer him something else. If you give him something else, he's going to go, all right, well, I'm satisfied for a bit, and, and you're going to drag it out. So he went just under 12 months, and he did drop weight, and he did get a bit weak, but in the end, he took that rat, mm-hmm. and he hasn't looked back since. And I can feed him anything now. I can feed him rats. I've fed guinea pig. I've fed pigeon, quail, chicks. Um, yeah, he, he will not turn down a feed. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they sort of know when they're, they don't need to be eating more, you know, they, they kind of turn off. Yeah. Yeah. But in saying that I do feed very sparingly. Mm-hmm. So he eats last feed he had before last night. So he, he's actually on the move now. Um, last night I fed him a large rat 
the meal before that was six months ago and it was a guinea pig. Yeah. So I feed, he generally gets, if it's something around the size of an extra large rat, it'll be once every three-ish months. I don't feed on a schedule. I don't feed any of my snakes on a schedule. I've got six at this point. And out of that six, four of them are jungles, <laughs> which that, that memory of the little machine guns always stuck with me. And yeah, I was yeah. like, one day, one day I'm going to get there. <laughs> um, but yeah, he, as an adult, he's getting, and he's in phenomenal condition, super strong. But yeah, he's getting fed once every three months. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the closest I'll, I'll feed him. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the thing is, like, I don't know what you you obviously live in Australia, so you are crossing paths with these animals in the wild. I don't know how often you see them, but you know, Morelia can get quite large depending on which species you're you're talking about. Some of them get really big, but a lot of this, a lot of them, those are old snakes that are that big. You know, yeah. they take a long time to get that large. The so in Victoria we don't get any. I think you can find Murray darlings up the very very top of Victoria. So I'm down about. Oh, probably a bit over halfway from the top. Um, we get a lot of venomous snakes. We get tiger snakes and copperheads and, and red bellies and whatnot, but um, we don't get any pythons down here, unfortunately. But the ones that you're referring to that get quite big, that all has to do with locality. Mm. If they're in... It's generally the coastal carpets because they're in built-up areas. If you look at how humans have not evolved, but sort of the the behaviours, they're built along the waterways. So wherever they're built up, these snakes are getting into the roofs. Humans are attracting rats. But those really big ones, they're eating possums. They're living in people's roofs. And they're eating possums. And these aren't like the American opossum. These possums are the size of a large cat. <laughs> yeah, so they're big. Oh, they're big. The brush-tail possums are, are very, very big animals. So when you see those monster carpet pythons, they're generally a coastal carpet python. Um, and, yeah, they're, they're living in built-up areas. And, yeah, they're eating, eating possums. I've seen freak accidents where they've eaten people's cats uh, Mm. breaking into guinea pig hutches chicken pens so but yeah they they can they're capable of getting very very big um at 25 years old and feeding how i've described uh the big guy is just under seven foot yeah so that's not huge that's not huge and but it's not small either Mm -hmm. Compared to so in Australia, you can only keep native species. Um, and for us, the only thing bigger than a carpet python that you can keep is going to be a scrub python or an olive python. Right. So we don't get any boa or anything. Well, I'm not, I'm sure people have them. They shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 But um, yeah, so carpet pythons are still. They're still a pretty big snake when, when they're at a full size. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, exactly. And and when I think about people, 
overfeeding them. They are, they, you know, they expect that seven feet in a couple of years rather than, you know, a, a seven foot Darwin in the wild might be a 10 year old snake or more who, who you, you know, who knows, but yeah. it's just, it's, it's a slow process. Yeah. And it's, is the, it depends what you sort of see as success, I guess. Like, do you want a snake that's going to live to 25 or do you want a snake that's going to live to 10? Do you plan yeah. on breeding? Um, like, why do you want a big? I find a lot of people they just want it for the novelty. Yeah, they, exactly. They, they want it. I tell people all the time, it's not a race. I, don't worry about how big it is. Is it got good condition? Has it got good muscle tone? Exactly. Like, it does. It doesn't matter if it's oh, it's only four foot at two years. If it's a healthy four foot at two years, good on you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're they're going to grow at different rates, and if it's a little bit smaller as a younger size, it's probably meaning that it's not you know <laughs> building up tons of fatty deposits inside its body, and you know giving it some time to fast and whatnot. And so getting back to the the Copperhead Customs, your your business that sort of just came up uh, just by you showing pictures, and I'm not surprised that when you start sharing pictures of your work, that people are wanting you to build them stuff because not everybody has that craftsmanship. So you were, you originally said you were thinking of, you know, flipping used secondhand enclosures. Did it just quickly evolve into building enclosures or are you mostly doing decor or maybe you could just give us a lay down of what you're doing? Yeah. So it started with just the backgrounds and then I had a company reach out to me and they built custom enclosures and they wanted to do custom backgrounds. I worked with that company for uh, probably about a year and a bit um, before things went south. We had a bit of a disagreement um, as far as professionalism and, and whatnot went and we went our separate ways. But during that time, I actually made friends with someone local to me who also builds custom enclosures. So, yeah, I have built enclosures myself when I first parted ways with that first company. I was like, oh, well, I'll just I'll do it all myself. I know how to build an enclosure now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I built a few and I came up with some designs and they were very popular. But it's a lot of work trying to do everything yourself. Yeah. And... Um, to do it on the scale that I wanted to, it wasn't really feasible. And then the local company to me, they were doing backgrounds. It's a husband and wife team. And, um, yeah, they're called Yarra Reptiles. And I work with them solely now. That's the only company that I work with. Can you spell do, that for people? Uh, so it's Yarra, uh, Y-A-R-R-A. Okay. Reptiles. Um, which is the area we live in, the Yarra, Yarra Valley. And, um, yeah, so they were doing backgrounds as well, but she wanted to focus more on the kids and, and running the, the business as far as invoicing and stuff went. So they asked if I would do backgrounds for them, and we've been going strong ever since. Mm, that's cool. So why don't we dive into a little bit of enclosure design and, and give people some tools and some things to think about whether or not someone's buying an enclosure if they don't want to build themselves or if they actually are you know wanting to try it to build themselves but you you, you laid down a a list of kind of just essentials to as a starting point before we get into the real important stuff so maybe we should just run through that quickly for folks yep so i've got the list here just because i'm a bit add and we'll we'll get off track but <laughs> so i've listed a bunch of baseline essentials for when 
it sets up when you're setting up a an enclosure. So my main focus is functionality. I want the space to be as functional as possible. And in order to do that, I believe that you need to know the behaviors of a species or a particular animal. So my baseline is enclosure size uh, judged by species and age appropriation. Obviously, like, I'm not going to put a baby carpet python in the enclosure next to me that's five foot by six foot by three foot. So it's three foot deep, six foot tall, five foot wide. Mm-hmm. If I put a baby in that, it's going to lose its mind or I'm just never going to see it. Yeah. So, yeah, you've got to use a bit of common sense, even though common sense isn't all that common anymore. But <laughs> it's the sort of thing that you need to do your research beforehand. I see posts all the time. Oh, I got this. What size enclosure should I put it in? It's like, do that research first, please. Um, but at the same time, don't slam someone for putting that up. Like they're trying to do the right thing now. Sure, it's a little bit too late, but they don't deserve to be bullied for putting that post up. They're trying to do their research. They're trying to do the right thing. Um, so yeah, that's that's the first one. Is yes, size and. Something that I wanted to refer to was your interview with Chris and he said people asking, oh, is it rack raised? Mm-hmm. And he saw that as a negative thing. Oh, well, I don't want something that's rack raised. It's inhumane, this, that, and the other. But I've had animals come from tubs and when I've gone to put them in an enclosure, they've never seen overhead lighting before. And being that they see in heat signature, when they saw that light above them, they immediately thought it was a threat. Right. But a baby carpet python or snake in general in the wild, most of their threat is going to be from birds. And if they've never seen heat from above, their instinct tells them they're about to get eaten. So if you're going from a tub selling to a pet keeper, pet keeper wants to keep in an enclosure, they need to know that that threat response is a possibility. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know that and you put it in and all of a sudden your animal is striking and losing its mind, you're going to be very overwhelmed very quickly. So I don't think necessarily asking if it's rack rated is a bad thing. I think it's an important thing to know if for the weaning process of tub to enclosure because the other thing is animals going off feed when they're young, you're putting them into a new environment where they don't feel safe. Mm-hmm. This is an animal that, and I've proven it by, by my guy doing what he did, can go a year without eating. Yeah. If it doesn't feel safe, it's not going to make itself vulnerable by filling its belly and having to sit around. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, just, it's, it's not going to happen. So then we need to look at heat and basking. Um, how different animals bask. If birds are the main thing that are going to pick off a baby animal, that animal is more than likely going to be less active during the day because that's when the birds are out. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it is probably going to want some form of belly heat 
Personally, I use DP projectors above stone to achieve that. But that doesn't mean it's not going to need a day and night cycle because what's going to tell it to come out at night that it's safe to come out? Yeah. So you've got to think about what type of animal it is, when it's active, why it's active during those times, and what it's going to be seeking out. So the bearded vet in one of his interviews was saying that the female bearded dragons that were ovulating were hanging out on the road because it was warm and because there were termites everywhere and they were just gorging on the termites. So I think we should probably be thinking about that as well. We think, okay, a bearded dragon, they bask during the day, you turn your heat off at night, or some people leave it on all the time. But personally, I'm a big advocate for day-night heat. My guys don't get any heat after 9 o'clock at night. Yeah. Um. But we should probably be taking that into account as well. Uh, hydration. Now, <laughs> the funny thing is you see so many people going, oh, my! I had a bad shed. How do I help a shed? I'm soaking my animal, um, especially when it comes to pythons and carpal pythons. But if you look at the community around uh, chameleon keeping, they had to work it out because their animals weren't just having bad sheds, their animals were dropping dead. Right. And when I started keeping naturalistically, I started misting my enclosures and I noticed that the animals were drinking from their coils, which I'd never seen before. Or I'd just always put a water bottle in. Um, oh, my lights just turned on. <laughs> um, so... Different ways of providing hydration, whether it be humidity, whether it be misting. Um, I've started introducing running water into my enclosures because in the wild, these animals are very often found along creek and river systems. Um, so to me, I was like, All right, well, if chameleon keepers prefer running water or will only drink running water, why, why would it be different for another species? Yeah. It's a good point. I mean, I, sometimes I wonder that too, like I'll go change my waters and my, even my boa enclosures and they watch me do it. So they're seeing the water move. They'll immediately come out and drink. And then I might not see them drink again until I refresh the water like a couple of days later. So it's, I, I sometimes wonder if it's just the movement of the water that makes them interested in it and then go after it. Well, the other thing is water is considered stagnant after 12 hours of not moving. Right. And people are always like, oh, yeah, well, you change your water more often, you'll notice they'll come and drink it straight away when you change it. It's like, well, why don't we work on keeping the water fresh? Yes, yeah. I would love to know how you're doing that. And maybe we'll just go on a quick tangent. How, how are you keeping the water moving? Uh, so I used a storage container to make a pond. Yeah. And then I use a submersible pump that runs a waterfall that trickles in, and I'll put a sponge filter around that pump. Okay. And then I've got a wet dry vac um, shop vacuum that I do water changes with. Yeah. Yeah, that's similar and to what I have done in one of my enclosures and it works fine. Yeah. Well, something that I've noticed and never seen them do it in the last 25 years is that after doing the six month fast after eating the guinea pig, um, in the last probably month, he started soaking in the pond. And I was like, huh, that's strange. Checked him over, 
no sign of any issues, no mites, no no shedding. He's not going into shed. And I think something people need to do more is ask why. Mm-hmm. They just want the answer. They just like boom. But really look into why. Not go like, oh, something must be wrong. Why would he be doing this? Have a real good think about it because I've seen pictures of olive pythons on iNaturalist and they will sit in water troughs and that is how they ambush Mm. because a wallaby comes along for a drink, sticks its head into the water, they grab the wallaby, drag it in, constrict, eat it. They're not going to chase down a wallaby in the middle of a rocky escarpment or out in the desert. So they need to be smart. I was like, all right, it's been a while since he's eaten. I wonder wonder if that's what it is. I wonder if he's ambushing. Well, sure enough, I put a rat in there last night and he hit that rat harder than I've seen him hit food in a long time. Mm-hmm. And immediately, immediate reaction. He had his nose just above the water and as soon as I opened that door with the rat, he was onto it. That's and cool. he dragged it into the pond. I had to turn the pond off because I needed a water change now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but something else I did, so I was like, I was a, being a little bit of a hypocrite to myself. I was like, okay, we should be offering these different things. But then I only offered him the running water. I was like, okay, well. And I recently refurbished the enclosure. And I was like, all right, one of the things I want to do is I want to make a section in the background that when the misters turn on or a hand mist it will hold water. So he's got both still water and running water. And ground level water and water up top. Because mm-hmm. if they're living in cliffs and it rains, there's going to be little rock pools for them. So... Now he's got three ways of hydration. He's got the mist that builds on his body from when I missed. He's got the running water down the bottom, and he's got still water up the top, which just evaporates and then gets topped up. So it's regularly getting changed. Yeah. Um, so that's something that I really wanted to do. I like offering a lot of options, and I think that's probably why I prefer big enclosures over small enclosures even for my younger animals. Um, Once they're eating, once they've taken one feed, I don't keep in tubs. I keep in small enclosures, whether it be a tall exoterra or I've got uh, my youngest one is in a two-by-two enclosure, and we'll talk about that in a minute too because that's something with the behaviour that's very important. Um, but it just allows you to offer more things. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so you got hydration and then security. Making the animal feel safe isn't as simple as putting a hide in. Depending on the species, they're going to want different things. So something like an anteresia or a children's python, they're very – so I've talked a lot with Peter Birch about this. Um, they're very tactile. They want to feel almost squashed into a hide. Yeah. So if you put your standard hide in, that's a very small snake. It's probably not going to be touching the sides at all. And that's people that keep on paper. They'll squeeze down under paper and whatnot. But you can do the same thing with bark. You can do the same thing with leaf litter, rock stacks like you would do for an ackee. 
Um, there's a lot of different ways, but the other thing is visual barriers. Mm-hmm. So the height that I've built into this system here is a big, deep crevice into the background. So it goes under one of the shelves and I've hung a big artificial hanging fern over the front of it. And when that's his favorite spot in that, in that setup. Um, but the other thing is that carpet pythons in particular feel safe up high. Mm-hmm. So his two favorite spots are that high and at the very top of the branch that goes across and sits right at the top. Um, all of my carpet pythons, oh, there's one that one that sits on the ground more than the others. So it is an individual thing, but um, when I got my youngest one, I put it in a tub that had the ability to get up off the ground. It had a heat mat. Well, he wanted to feel safe. He went straight up onto that branch and he sat there and would not bask whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And Nick Martin mentioned recently, I think it was possibly Trap Talk Radio or one of the other podcasts, and he said, yeah, these animals, they'll sit on a block of ice if they do not feel safe. They will not come out and bask. So I've had to very quickly adapt because a heat mat under a tub does not create an ambient temperature. Right. So I left it two days and monitored them and would pick them up ice cold, put them on the mat, straight back up on that branch, straight away. I'm like, this is no good. He's going to get sick. And he'd come from Queensland where it's a lot warmer. So I was really worried. It was going to be a big temperature shock. It's like, oh, all right, what do I do? So I got a small enclosure and I put overhead heat and I cluttered it with as much branches and fake plants as I could. So there was, I could barely see him most of the time, but that meant he couldn't see out, which made him feel safe. Mm-hmm. And most people, oh, you put a baby snake in a in a big enclosure like that, it's not going to eat. And this is up to two days of having him. I put him in there. And he has not, I drop fed him the first time. Um, so I just put it in there, turned the lights off, left and be, he took it, and he hasn't turned down a feed since. Yeah. So I think visual barriers are a big thing. Um, one of my girls, she's got a very, very cluttered, uh, it's my Thai forest one, uh, enclosure and plenty of spots on the ground to hide. She likes sitting behind the bamboo thicket up on a shelf. She's up high and she can't see out. She Technically, she's sitting out in the open. Yeah. But she feels safe because she can't see out and she feels like there's enough cover that a potential threat can't see in. I just want to take a short break from today's episode to thank each and every one of you for tuning in today. If you would like to show more support for the podcast, you can do that by checking out the show's sponsor, Custom Reptile Habitats. There is an affiliate link in both the YouTube description and the show notes. If you do make a purchase through that link, a commission comes back to me at no extra cost to you. 
The other way you can show support to the podcast is through the Patreon account. For as little as 75 cents per episode, you will automatically be added to the Discord server so you can communicate and chat with other like-minded keepers. If you do bump yourself up to the $5 a month tier, you'll have early access to the episodes and the opportunity to submit questions to upcoming guests. Again, I am so grateful for each and every one of you. This podcast is a lot of work and costs me a lot of money each month to run, and any support coming from your end is greatly appreciated. Back to the episode. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a great point. Like you said, like that sense of security is so key. And if if they do have any fear of anything, they're not going to want to sit there and digest a meal for a couple of weeks and put themselves into a vulnerable position, especially because they can go for so, so long without eating. So it's just about breaking that that eye line up, right? Putting stuff in front. Yep. So when you're when you walk past, they're not seeing a giant shadow move across the the enclosure. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there, there are ways to do that without it being a naturalistic setup. Mm-hmm. You don't. So the next note that I had on here was sanitation. So being able to clean the enclosure obviously is important, but also ventilation. Mm-hmm. Because if you, so I run all live planted setups. They're either live planted or a mixture of live plants and artificial plants. And I have a bit of a gripe with how people say carp pythons can't handle humidity. I'm like, anyone that's been to Queensland knows that that is one of the most humid places on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's Thailand level humidity. Um, so to say these animals will get an RI if they're in a humid environment, to me, is incorrect. The reason they're getting an RI is either because they're wet and cold. So wet and cold is not humid. Wet and cold is wet. Yeah. Uh, humid is, how do you describe humidity, I guess? It's the moisture in the air, mm. and it is hot. And damp, not wet. Yes. Um, but in that, a hot and damp environment grows bacteria really, really well. And I can't remember who it was, but there was a study done. He thought he had some sort of a viral infection. It was knocking his snakes off left, right, and center. And he had a necropsy done. Turned out it wasn't a virus at all. It was a infection caused by mold in the respiratory system. Wow. So he thought his animals were passing a virus to the next one, to the yeah, next one, to the next one. He thought it was like NIDO or, or crypto or something along those lines, and it turned out it was all related to mold. Wow. So something I've started doing, and it was inspired by Focus Cube Habitats, is putting fan ventilation systems. Yeah. In to create a higher level of air exchange. Now, obviously, in doing that, you have to be careful not to dry your system out. So you are going to have to counteract the moisture and the ventilation and find that balance. And a great way of doing that is listening and talking to chameleon keepers. Yeah. Because that was another issue they were running into. Not enough ventilation, not enough humidity. How do we find a balance? How do we create a system that can provide both and i think a lot can be learned by studying things that actually have nothing to do with you like we can't even get chameleons here right 
And yeah, I've listened to hours and hours and hours of podcasts on chameleons. Mm-hmm. Dart frogs problems. are another one. Yeah. Dart frogs are another one. Like you want to learn how to keep a nice bioactive system and keep plants alive? Go and listen to some dart frog keepers. Yeah. Um, but obviously you need to be able to clean. So sanitation, both making sure you've got proper ventilation. If you've got excessive moisture buildup, even if you're keeping in a tub, if you're establishing an animal in a tub and you've got water droplets hanging off that lid, you need to put more air holes in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then being able to clean. So in my naturalistic setups, I spot clean and they're bioactive, depending on how you see that term, I guess. Um, but I still spot clean. They're, they're snakes. Yeah. No amount of ice pods are going to break down your rates. Um, but I, I find that much, much easier. A lot of people argue that paper towel or newspaper is easier, but um, I don't find that to be the case. I, I prefer spot cleaning. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that, that's your, your criteria. Obviously, you don't want to make your life harder than it needs to be. Yes. But once those criteria are met, that, that's your basis for an enclosure. And then you want to focus on making it functional. So I've got here uh, creating a functional habitat through the study of natural history and behaviours. So this is where knowing what you want to keep is super duper important. If I had put, I don't believe that carpet pythons, especially as adults, should be in anything. They shouldn't be in a two foot tall enclosure, in my opinion. Yeah. It doesn't suit their needs. They want to be up high. And this is coming from someone, keep in mind, that kept in a two foot tall enclosure for 20 years. <laughs> yeah. Um, as soon as I put him, and he used to sit along the top. So my four by two by two was a converted fish tank. There's another no-no for you. <laughs> um, he did escape that a couple of times, to be fair. But he liked to sit along the lip where the glass panes sit across to stop fish jumping out. And he got so big that he was falling off of it all the time. And, and I didn't like seeing that. So I was like, all right, I'm getting, now that I'm working with custom closure and builders and know what can be done, I'm getting my big setup made. And he spends 99.9% of his time up off the ground. Mm-hmm. And I see that and go, I deprived him of that for so, so long. So now I'm trying to make up for it by going as far as I go. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that showed me two foot tall for an adult. It's just not high enough. And I've had people say to me, oh, well, I've kept him two foot tall and he never, never sits up the top, never goes high. If you temp gun the top corner of an enclosure, the amount of heat that sits up there is much, much higher. So under um, one of my setups, I've recently changed the bulb to a lower wattage because at ground level under the basking light, and this is a t- the 
baby one. So it's a two foot by two foot enclosure. Under the basking light was 30 degrees. So I was like, yeah, cool. That's what I want. That top corner was sitting at 46 degrees. Wow. That's crazy. So, yeah, the the buildup of hot air, and it's got ventilation, but obviously it's not enough ventilation to let that out. So a lot of the time I think that reason people's animals aren't sitting up the top and they're like, nah, he's not interested in climbing. It's not that he's not interested in climbing. It's that it's 46 degrees up there and he doesn't want to sit in that. Yeah. Um, yeah, all of my animals have been given the space to climb and every single one of them climbs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, likewise, yeah. <laughs> Most of them spend more time up off the ground than on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially Which, carpets. My my carpets always. I, I never see him on the ground. Maybe at nighttime when he's cruising, but other than that, he's he's up in the trees. And even my boas most of the time are are up in the trees. Yeah. So, all right. Think about from a natural history point of view. Where's the danger? Exactly. Yeah. All the predators on the ground. On the mm. ground, or a bird flying above, looking into an open space for something to eat. Yeah. Much harder to see a snake that looks like a stick hanging in a tree full of sticks than <laughs> exactly. it is on the ground. Mm -hmm. So I was helping someone recently with, it was actually in Antaresia, and she could not get it to eat. She put it into a new enclosure, couldn't get it to eat. So went through her setup with her, gave her some advice, kept trying, kept trying, kept trying. And then she ended up taking it to the vet just for a checkup. She wanted to make sure it wasn't going down in weight. Because I said, like, don't stress about it not eating. Just monitor the weight and condition of the animal. And she's like, okay, well, I'm going to take it to the vet and get them to check it over just, just to be sure. The vet's like, all right, put some climbing opportunities, put some branches and, and stuff. Well, this is an animal that's known for sitting on the ground. It's highly terrestrial. It was straight up on that branch. She drop fed it two nights in after sitting on that branch at night and it ate. Mm. I've had carp discussions with carpet python breeders who in their tubs will put perches because no perch, baby carp python's not eating, put a perch in there and it eats. Interesting. It's just, and it goes back to that security thing. It's security. It's not going to eat if it doesn't feel safe. Yeah. Um, so you need to understand what makes the animal feel safe in order to create a base function of an enclosure that you need your animal to eat. Yeah. So, yeah, knowing. Knowing the species is one thing um, and being able to study that, but different animals do have different behaviors. Like different individuals it, within the same species. Yeah. Yeah. So two of my, no, one of my jungles will prefer to hide on the ground level. The others prefer to be up high. Uh, one of my darlings prefers to be hiding on the ground level and then comes up higher at night. But something else that I've noticed is the um, 
So one of my Darwins is an albino. And I noticed that every time the lights turned off, she would come and sit on the basking spot, but I never saw her basking. Mm. And I'm doing what I've been told on like the reptile lighting group and, and whatnot. And so I'm, I've got halogen or an incandescent and it's sitting there. Well, it turned out that she wasn't basking because she's light sensitive. Right. Therefore, she's coming out, sitting on the spot to soak up any residual heat once that light goes out. And I've seen her do it. I noticed it two or three nights in a row. I was like, okay, I'm going to change that to a deep heat projector and then run an LED strip for visible light. And straight away she was basking. Mm. Now, Reptile Lighting Group is going to tell you that a DP projector is not suitable for basking, but she will not bask under a light-emitting glow. Yeah, which makes perfect sense. I mean, you hear lots of people with albino animals do the exact same thing. And if you know anybody with albinism, they often wear sunglasses inside yeah. because the lights are too, they make their eyes hurt because their eyes are very sensitive to just a basic fluorescent. But there is no care guide or advice that differentiates between an albino carpet, uh, albino Darwin and a wild type Darwin. Yeah. So it goes to knowing but your animal. You've got a new keeper walks into a pet shop, sees a nice bright yellow and white albino snake, wants that one because it's different, goes on the reptile lighting group or any Facebook group or any care guide, goes, okay, what do I need? Goes, all right, I don't want colored globes. All right, fair enough. I'm going to go with a basking globe. And then their animal gets sick because it's avoiding sitting in the light. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I entirely agree with the whole DP projector not being suitable for basking because I've got an LED spotlight, an incandescent, and a um, DP projector run alongside a Shade Dweller UVB. And the big eye, he will always sit on, so they're clustered into one group, but he'll always sit off to the side that the DP projector's on. Yeah. I, I see the, the same thing with my boas, the exact same thing. It's clustered, but obviously, you know, you're not angling things inward, so it's all converging yeah. onto one point. There's going to be like a little bit of separation. And I see the same behavior, this slight angle towards the deep heat. And so I'm just like you. I, I see, I know the reptile lighting folks, you know, have a logical reason why it's not necessarily a basking ball, but there is something interesting going on there where the animals are preferring that heat for some reason. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not sure why, but... And I'm not going to take away the other bulbs. That's the exactly. other thing. I'm going to, he's going to have the option for that. And even with the, when I upgrade the albino girl's enclosure, what I'm going to do is I'm going to stagger light. So it'll be DP projector for a couple hours in the morning. Then during the middle of the day, it's going to be incandescent and LEDs with the um, UVB. But I'm going to go to luminize because I want to see if I can dial the UV down enough that she will still bask under it. Yeah, that'll be interesting. 
Um, so that's something I'm keen to play around with, except all of the luminized products in Australia are still sitting on the dock. Mm, damn. <laughs> so we, we don't have access yet. But um, I'm very excited to play around with that. But then at night, the other thing that sort of I've been thinking about is in Queensland, it doesn't cool down as soon as the sun goes down. So I don't think we should be, I don't provide heat throughout the whole night but it doesn't cool down till 9 or 10 o'clock at night before the temp starts dropping. So I want to run a DP projector at night to imitate that residual heat in the rocks and and sort of imitate that more natural. Because it's not just light that that scales like that. Yeah. Yeah, there's still there's still heat in the air. The items in the in, uh, like you said, the rocks, the ground, the trees, everything's still holding some of that heat from the day. The air temperature is just warmer, even though the sun has set. You know, you don't get a sweater to go outside until you know the sun's been down for an hour and a half or two hours or whatever. Once that heat dissipates, so yeah, I think that's a perfectly yeah. fine way to do it. Yeah, so I've been thinking about that a lot, but yeah, back to the knowing the species and knowing the animals. So something I saw that was interesting recently was on Mike's monitors, and he deals a lot with like water monitors. They can be very skittish. One of the things that he did was create a hollow tube, put it over water, and all of a sudden his animals started progressing a lot more than the ones that weren't kept like that. And he goes, I think it's because in the wild, they're small enough to hang out in trees that are over a river. And if danger comes, they can jump into the water, get away, they feel safe. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing as allowing carp pythons to get up high. It's where they feel safe. Yeah. So we need to start thinking outside the box. We can't just be going, oh, my carp python won't eat. What do I do? Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's something that needs to be sort of done more. Um, so really, instead of function first, it should be study first. It should be study that natural behavior and understand the animal that you're keeping. Yes, absolutely. Well, do you do anything specific to to pull information about their natural behavior? Do you have any study habits or is it more hands-on as far as being in Australia? Um, I suppose it's a little bit about being hands-on, but not really. I haven't seen carpet pythons in the wild. I've seen black-headed pythons, but not carpet pythons. Um, iNaturalist is a really good source. Mm-hmm. I do like uh, reptile photography and that, but most of those pictures are not where they found the animal. <laughs> They're not perfectly posing on that rock? Uh, with a sunset behind it. And <laughs> yeah. And I've got a photography background, so I understand wanting to get the best shot. But, yeah, that's not a realistic look into it. Um, Just watching and consuming a lot of content, like listening to podcasts, watching YouTube channels, um, especially if it's a herping YouTube channel where they're showing them, finding it where it is. Mm-hmm. There's a young kid by the name of Miller Wilson who does a lot of survival sort of videos. And I've been watching him for a lot of years since he was about 10 years old. But he is constantly finding snakes in the wild. But he's not the type of person to go and grab it and wave it around and and show off. He will put the camera down and watch the animal and talk about the animal, give you some information. But 
he doesn't pose the animal. Yeah. He'll be lying in the middle of a bush <laughs> to get the shot because he wants to show how the animal behaves. And he's fine. That, that's where I've seen most of the realistic um, content about carpet pythons. He's found them swimming in rivers. He's found babies up on trees that are across river systems. And interestingly enough, they do the same thing. They'll bail off the side of that log into the water. Really? Yeah. That's very Gee. fascinating. Yeah. Like, not super-duper common, but they will do it to, yeah. to get away. Um, up in small trees and, and whatnot. So if you you got to try and find wild footage. Mm. Um, the most – if you can find a YouTube channel where they're going out and finding these animals – that's probably your best way. Otherwise, iNaturalist is a really good way because if you can find someone that's not a photographer that hasn't gone and picked it up and put it somewhere nice to take the photo, you can learn a lot, like the um, olive pythons ambushing from water. Yeah, yeah. And then, like you said, that additional layer of paying attention to the animal that you have. It's not just about understanding the species, you know, that's your starting point, but then bring the animal into your home and start working with it and, and paying attention to, okay, how come it's not eating? It seems to be favoring this side of the enclosure, you know, again, kind of using that, that base of creating a, an, animal, an environment where the animal is going to feel very secure and working with that and then watching its behavior, seeing where it basks, all these different things. It's, it's, it's sort of multifaceted in that sense. And, and that's a really good starting point to then to start to build your enclosure. Yeah, and um, yeah, your your interview with the guys from Project Herpeticulture, they were like, all right, well, what nature are we trying to replicate? Mm -hmm. Which is a very good point, but I don't think you should be really trying to replicate that exact environment because you're going to find these animals all over the place. I think you should be trying to replicate an environment that meets the needs of the behaviours. Mm-hmm. So why is a carpet python hiding in someone's shed or, or in their roof? They're hiding there because there's a high ambient temperature because there's either no insulate. Well, in both cases, there's no insulation because in a roof cavity, they don't insulate between the tiles. They insulate the floor, I guess. Like if you picture an attic, it's the floor that's insulated. Right. Yeah. not the actual roof. In our houses, if you get in the roof cavity, you can see the underside of the tin or tile. So right, so it's going to be hot. Yeah, it's hot as in there. My dad converted the top of his. He restores classic cars, so he wanted more storage space. He put a floor in the roof of his house. But you go up there, and it's like 46, 50 degrees. In <laughs> oh yeah, no kidding. The Australian and, sun and just beaming down on it. That's in Melbourne. Right, so you go f to Queensland, it's going to be way, way hotter. Queensland and Sydney, it's hotter. So yeah. these that's a environment that it doesn't need to move from very often because there's resources, because the possums and mice and rats get up in there. Um, especially like down here, we see it a lot with tiger snakes. People with chickens end up with snakes right. because the chicken food attracts rats. It's a resource. So... 
They're in that environment because of the resources. It's got an, an appropriate ambient temperature and it's got food and it's safe. It's from, it's away from birds. Yeah. Yeah. You're kind of out of a predator zone for the most part and you have unlimited food. Yeah, basically. <laughs> so I think we need to look at more about what they're trying to achieve rather than what the environment is. Mm. I could build just as functional of an enclosure using PVC pipe and some screw-in shelves or even a towel rail. If you screw a towel rack into the back of your enclosure, I guarantee your carpet violin's going to sit on it. Totally. Yeah, totally. So it's not about having a naturalistic enclosure. It's about having a functional enclosure. I just like how a naturalistic enclosure looks. Yeah. But there needs to be the understanding that you can create a functional enclosure. Like it doesn't have to be a water bowl, hide and paper towel or a fully bioactive zoo level enclosure. Yeah. Like, yeah. There, there's, there's steps between, and, and I think, and I think that's a really good point. And I think that it was, was kind of the, the point that Phil was making from the other side is that some people try to create this naturalistic looking environment, but then don't take in consideration the behaviors and the function because they just think like, oh, this looks nice because there's fake rocks and there's like a cool natural branch. But then the animal is left kind of in, in the, without the, the things that it needs to behave naturally, whether it's an arboreal species or whatever. I mean, or soak, it wants to soak and, you know, you could list a bunch of different things, but you could easily make something look very natural and appeasing to the eye and it completely get an F on the, whether it's functional for that specific species. Yeah. For example, I could make an eight foot long by two foot tall enclosure, which is more than long enough for the animal. That's, in my opinion, not appropriate for a carpet python. Yeah, it's big. There's lots of space. Yeah, but it's Just, the wrong space. Yeah, exactly. The, fun, the function to support the natural behaviors isn't there. And I believe that's what we need to be pushing and supporting more than enclosure size. Like, it's easier to achieve that with enclosure size. And I keep in big enclosures, but yeah. it's not a case of, well, my enclosure is bigger, therefore it's better. Yeah. If I had this enclosure with no shelves in it, would it be any good? Yeah, no, because exactly. he couldn't get off the ground. What's yeah. what's he got to sit on? What's he got to bask on? Mm -hmm. Right. And when I first started keeping, we, I vaguely remember a discussion. I think it was with a pet shop, and they were like, "Yeah, well, you'll never heat and a big enclosure like that." But things have changed since then. We're not heating it with party globes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and you also, you also don't need to heat the entire thing, right? You're heating maybe a section. You're not required to heat an entire six by five, whatever it is. It, it's just, yeah, there's well, a section been, for basking. So let's take a second to talk about thermostats because I think this is something that's done completely incorrectly. Um, here we have a type of thermostat. I can't think I was going to look up the name of it before we started, but I didn't. Um, it's a warm out thermostat. And you, it's got a dial on it. You dial it to what you want. It's inside your enclosure and it's supposed to monitor and control the ambient temperature. It's basically a jerry rigged version of a house thermostat. Okay. The highest setting on it is 30 degrees Celsius. And 
what happens is it's got a metal connector, connector goes down, closes the circuit, lights come on, gets to the temperature, that disconnects, lights go off. Now, first off, they're very inaccurate. Second off, you can't set your basking zone to a certain temperature. Um, things that people, and these are still sold in enclosures, especially in Australia. I don't know about the rest of the world. Um, and are deemed as appropriate thermostats, which I think in a lot of ways, they're very, very dangerous because when they short out, that connection welds shut, locking Perfect. your lights to an on, on position. Yeah. So worst case scenario, they fail in the wrong orientation, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So now picture what happens when you put a ceramic heat emitter in a bowl, in a socket, and that fails. Yeah. It's blasting. First off, it's blasting and it can get to an insane temperature that is just going to turn your enclosure into an oven. And I've seen people put like 150 watt ceramic heat emitters in four by two enclosures. Oh God. And it's like, why why are you doing that? <laughs> yeah. And relying on the thermostat to control the temperature. Yes, yeah. I think most buyers with, if it's not started from your power board, is because, especially in Australia, is because of these thermostats. Because what people don't realize is that electrical wiring has a heat rating. So I'm sure you've seen it where people will temp gun the socket that's got a ceramic heat meter and, oh, it's, it's crazy hot. It's like, the main response is, oh, yeah, but you're that's because you're tamping the socket, not the, the basking zone. Yeah. Right, well, if you're exceeding the temperature rating on that wiring, you're going to burn that wiring out and possibly start a fire. Yes. And if your thermostat is locking your lights to an on position, I can guarantee that is going to exceed... The, the, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, th I like I, I completely agree. Where there's this weird thing in the, in the reptile hobby where people buy lights or, or heating elements that are way too powerful, and then exactly like you're saying, they're using the thermostat to keep them in the range. Where uh, this is how I use mine, and maybe this is probably what you're you use do as well. Is my thermostat is purely a fail safe, and the the lights on when they're on create a basking zone of the temperature I want. They actually don't control that temperature zone they they will it will click off the lights if something gets too high for some reason and then they just it, it dims them down or turns them right off rather yeah. than this you know attempting to use the thermostat to constantly pinpoint that basking zone instead buy a bulb that's going to give you the basking zone that you need so it can run at its full temperature or, or on and then you don't have to worry as much yeah yeah exactly so I think it's a lot to do with the marketing of the products. They're referred to as temperature control unit or, or whatever. Um, I think they should be looked at like a safety belt mm -hmm. in a car. You don't ever want to actually need your safety belt. Yeah. So they should be there as a safety measure, not as a control measure, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And the easiest way to do that is just buy a lower wattage device, whatever it is, whatever you're using, and, and grab your laser temp gun and, and start playing around and figuring out, 
you know, what, yep. what size of wattage so, you need. Another thing that I want to say about ceramic heaters is because I don't like them, but I know that a lot of people recommend them. If you're going to use a ceramic heat emitter, you need to understand that it's heating air and you need to understand that it's been borrowed from the poultry industry where they're using them in hanging domes. The reason they use them in a hanging dome is because it distributes the heat away from the wiring. Mm. If you're trapping that heat between a ceramic, so picture this, ceramic bulb, ceramic socket is going to conduct that heat very well from one to another same as a stovetop is going to heat a frying pan yeah it's metal on metal it's transferring that heat ceramic on ceramic same thing but if you're trapping those wires between malamine timber even pvc and that ceramic and that heat can't escape that wiring is going to get hotter than it should mm. Yeah. You will burn it out, especially if you're using, if you go on Amazon or eBay and buy a socket, I'd be very surprised if that wiring meets standard ratings. Yeah. Cause who the hell knows? Just some Chinese company that just whips it out and it's inexpensive yeah. and they, they have no obligation to follow safety ratings. It's just, you know, you're buying it. It's kind of buyer beware at that point. And everywhere in the world has different voltages and ratings. Exactly. So people, I think, need to understand, one, what a ceramic globe is for. It's for an ambient temperature can, to increase an ambient temperature. But two, they should be used in a hanging dome. Yeah. Yeah, those are great, um, great tips. And, and that's why I, I heat my room to, to the lowest ambient temperature I want. That way I'm not worrying about creating more ambient temperature within each individual enclosure. I mean, that would be like a nightmare down here for me. So I have behind me, no one can see it, but you can see it right there. That's just my oil heater and it just heats the room and keeps the room at 75 degrees or whatever, 24, whatever degrees Celsius. And then I'm happy. And then then I can work with the basking zones and whatnot, but I don't have to try to control every single enclosure's ambient temperature. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, Ambient temperature of enclosures is almost feel like it's a relic of the past Mm. because we didn't have the technology to create sufficient basking zones. Um, And probably because digital thermostats weren't as popular or weren't a thing. So we didn't have a choice. It was, all right, well, it needs a temperature of this. So set your wall thermostat that's controlling the temperature inside your enclosure as a whole to 30 degrees. Yeah. Um, but now we can really pinpoint and create gradients. So we should be doing that. We shouldn't. I mean, a, an ambient temperature is going to make your life easier because your bulbs, you're going to need a lower wattage bulb. But I don't think it's as as important as people think it is. Mm, Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And provided you have the appropriate basking zone, you can allow the animal to to heat up and get to temperature. It's not as, yeah. I was was told, well, if the top of your enclosure is uh, what it is, but the bottom of your enclosure is in the twenties, then your animal's only going to use the top half. It's not the case. Mm, No. He's all over that enclosure. 
Yeah. And that ranges from high 30s to mid to low 20s. And it also gets cold outside in Australia in the winter. You know, the, the temperatures yeah. are going to be even, way below 20. Even up north. I've seen in the middle of the desert, I've seen snow on Uluru. Yeah. So you're getting way below 10 degrees Celsius. And that's not going to instantly kill every single piece of wildlife up there, is it? Yeah. Otherwise, exactly. there'd be nothing up there. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah, I think we need to focus on function, animal behavior. Um, if you're not sure why your animal is doing something, finding out why it's doing it. Like my boy soaking in his pond for the first time in 20 years. Mm-hmm. It's like, all right, let's get what's going on here. Don't just assume that something's wrong. Just try and work out why. Yeah, yeah, that's great advice. I think that that gives people a really good foundation for creating an enclosure, whether you're building your own enclosure or you're going and you're trying to fill the enclosure with decor. And, and maybe we can spend some a little more time later, maybe just discussing some more decor ideas. Well, maybe we can get into that now even as I, I'm very curious about your process for making backgrounds. Obviously, I guess people in Australia can buy them. Maybe you could talk about that for anybody that wants to actually use your business. But then for those who are outside Australia, we can talk about, you know, that process of doing what you do. Yeah. All right. So let's let's start. The reason that I made my first background was because I couldn't afford universal rock. Mm-hmm. So let's start there. I, I don't expect everyone to, and I'm around the same price as universal rock at this point, um, but I don't expect everyone to be able to afford that because I couldn't always afford that. Yeah. So... And this is a bit of a scoop because I generally, I haven't got any tutorial videos. I do have a YouTube channel, uh, but I'm not really interested in doing tutorial videos on how to do it and teach people. Maybe someday down the track I'll release a course or something. But um, so this is a scoop just for for the podcast listeners. Yeah, yeah um, that's awesome. Thank you. No, that's, that's all good. So first thing you need to do is understand products. Um, so you see a lot of people use expanding foam and they smush silicon all over it, press dirt into it. Looks fantastic. Did you know expanding foam is extremely flammable? Mm. I didn't know that, but I would have assumed that (laughs) it doesn't look like, it looks like if you threw it into a fire, it would be bad. Even when it's fully set, it is extremely flammable. Now, combine that with a thermostat that locks your heat on and a bulb that is much higher wattage than necessary. You can see why people's reptile rooms burn down. Yeah, yeah. Um, So it is a good product. I do use it. If you're putting it under basking bulbs, you need more than silicon and dirt. Mm. Now, Depending on where you are in the world, I've seen a lot of different products used in America and I think Canada as well. Dry lock method is very popular. We can't get dry lock here. Um, so Australians tend to use tile pointing. It's very, very popular, which I do use. Um, grout is another one that's quite popular. Or if you know what you're doing, you can use cement, but you will end up with a heavier product. Right. Um, And then you need to think about the water resistance of what you're coating it in. 
when your animal inevitably goes to the toilet on that basking shelf, is that going to absorb in? Or are you going to be able to scrub that off? Right. And if you're painting it, are you needing to seal that paint in? When it comes to painting it, thinking about toxicity, um, you don't want oil-based paints. Uh, most spray paints, there are acrylic spray paints if you can find them. Um, quick tip is a lot of graffiti brands have acrylic spray paints, and I do use them, and they're very, very fun to use. Um, but you need to know that it's a non-toxic product. Yeah. You need to make sure that what you're using is curing properly, so waiting the correct curing time. I've seen people put backgrounds in with expanding foam and they've done the expanding foam so thick that the, at the very back it's still liquid. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. So it's understanding that, being patient, understanding how it works, building it up slowly, um, either sealing what you're coating it with or picking a product that does it naturally. Tile pointing is used for sealing the gaps in roof tiles, so it's naturally, one, it's non-toxic because that water is going into your guttering, which can then go into your water tank. And two, it's water resistant because it's on a roof and it's UV resistant. So it's a very, very good product um, for doing this type of stuff. I've started playing around with custom mixes that are inspired by um, companies that do like landscaping and large scale rock work. I've watched I've, I've watched YouTube videos entirely in like Brazilian and Spanish <laughs> and, and like that I can't even understand what they're saying. Like my wife's walked in and gone, "What are you watching?" <laughs> I was like, "I'm watching someone make a rock." <laughs> yeah, yeah, just can't understand what he's saying, but it looks good. Yeah, but I can see what he's doing. I can see what consistency is creating. Um, so there's a lot of different methods to doing it and watching how other industries do it is a good way to do to learn different tricks i worked do you guys do have rendering on houses over there rendering yeah it's where they create like a cement coating over like brickwork or we would have like stucco like stucco would that be similar where it's like a really rough yeah, yeah. And it's kind yeah, of like so a cement stucco yeah. is very historical method of rendering okay um, okay here in, here in australia they make a more smooth sort of finish okay now i had i worked for a friend for a while in between jobs and he's a renderer so i learned how to manipulate cement based products through that how to thicken them up how to how thick you could build them up what will dry if it's extremely thick and what won't mm. um so even studying just working with concrete is a really good way to add more tools to your toolbox when it comes to doing this kind of stuff. Yeah, that's a great tip. Um, so I've started playing around with creating thicker consistency so I can carve rock from the actual coating more than from the foam. Um, so are you still using problem, spray foam as your base or are you using a different type of foam? 
No, so I use either standard polystyrene or XPS insulation. Foam. Okay. And then I will angle that, pin it in place with skewers, and then use expanding foam to join. Gotcha. The areas. So that creates a more dynamic shape than just layering it, and it creates less waste. Mm. That makes sense. Um, but yeah, the thicker you go with your coating, the heavier it's going to be. So I'm in the process of working towards being able to create a lighter weight, more sculptable um, product using tile pointing as the base. Gotcha. And that's what you're carving the details into rather than carving into the, the or is that's, it a bit of both? So I do carve details into the foam, but you tend to lose details by the time you get your coating layer thick enough for it right. to be protected from heat. Um, another thing that people really need to think about is what you're putting in there. If you're putting a monitor lizard into an enclosure, I highly recommend you don't make your background out of spray foam. Mm, yeah it's going to um, terrorize it <laughs> a lot of people have had their animals end up behind their backgrounds yeah they dig right through it they dig right through it and create a burrow into the background there was a customer of mine i made him a background and then he found someone cheaper for his next one and they used expanding foam and he ended up with his three black-headed monitors in behind the background and he had to tear the entire thing out and wow. so it was just money, money down the drain. Yeah. So it did not save money on that one. Not, not, not in the long run. <laughs> Plus, then you have to worry about all the like spray foam or, or even any foam. When you start digging up and creating like little particles, it just like, you know, aerates itself or aerosols itself. And then it becomes a, it could be an actual danger to the animal's health. Yeah. The other thing is um, when you heat up spray foam, it releases gases. So if you don't have it properly coated up, then what gases are getting released into your enclosure? Exactly, yeah. And considering most enclosures don't have the best ventilation, that can be a big issue. So, yeah, you want to think about flammability, water interaction, toxicity, and density. And density can be dictated by what's going in there. Right, yeah. If it's just a snake, you don't have to go heavy-duty. No, but at the same time, if you're putting big branches and leaning them on the background, you also don't want it to punch through. Exactly, yeah. Um, making sure it's sealed to the enclosure itself so they can't get behind it. That was one of my gripes with Universal Rock products was the fact that the way they do it, it's not flat on the back, whereas my backgrounds are flat on the back. And the reason that I haven't tried to stray away from that is because I prefer it to be sealed against the back of the yes. enclosure so nothing can get behind it. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And, and um, what, so what, what yeah. about for color? Or maybe you were going to get into that, but if you're, I assume you're coloring the mixture before you apply it to the foam, is there something specific so that you use to color? I do a bit of both. I create a base color using, so I start with black. I, I coat it up and I make it all black. And then I use, I make my own paints from pigment powders, concrete cement, uh, not concrete cement, um, concrete glue, 
which is like PVA, but it doesn't re-emulsify. So standard PVA, if you put it underwater or get it wet consistently, will re-emulsify, it will go wet again. Yes, yeah. Brickwork PVA products have a chemical in it that will stop that from happening. So I use Once that. Once it dries, it's dry. Oh, yeah. And it's tough. It's It still creates that hard layer like PVA will. So I'll use water, the glue, and then pigment powder to create my paint. And then you water it down to the consistency that you need and then paint that on. And then I'll use acrylic spray paints and I'll do a shadowing technique where I'll go a dark color from underneath and then a light color from above. And it creates a natural sort of shadow effect and bring out details. Mm, that's cool. Um, I got that from painting models. Mm. Um, even like seeing people dry brush, they're, they're acting like it's this new amazing thing. Mm. Dry brushing has been a stock standard technique in model painting for a very, very long time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's where we're pulling all that stuff from pretty much. Yeah, so that's where like even watching how model train people paint rock work because they're painting landscape same as we are just on a tiny scale instead of a big scale yeah yeah so same fundamentals though watching the techniques making sure that they're animal safe and then upscaling them is, is the basic way of of doing it um so yeah i'll do my shadowing and everything with the spray paints and then i'll do speckling by spattering different colors in different layers and then you've got washes, which is another technique borrowed from the model world where you'll create a watered down version of the paint and it will seep into the cracks and lower details. And that'll create another level of shading. Yeah. So, so when you get an order, does someone just give you the dimensions and they'll tell you this is the species or do they come up with an idea or, or how much of it is it creative on your part? Yeah, so my order process, I've got three tiers of prices. So I've got tier one is like an exoterra background. It's just flat with the rock texture, no shelves, suitable for something like geckos or frogs, anything like that. It's not my most popular tier, but I've got it there just in case people want it. And then... Um, so my next tier is the tier two, that's back wall only with shelves. And then tier three is all three sides. Okay. Um, so they'll give me, generally because I'm installing it into a Yarra Reptiles enclosure, I already know the dimensions. Um, if I'm doing it for someone that's got an existing enclosure, then I get internal dimensions and I build it according to that. Generally, I end up getting free reign as far as style goes. But I'll ask right, dimensions first off, what species is going in it? And do you have any requests as far as what you want it to look like? Okay. That's cool. And from there, I pretty much get free reign and I haven't had any complaints. 
Yeah. Well, I'm not surprised by that. When you look at your work, it's just like, whoa, it, uh, it's phenomenal to look at. And, you know, it, I, I think a lot of it has to do with that attention to detail and being able to create the dimension through the color at, and yeah. pulling out those details because it just gives the enclosure so much more depth when you look at them. And it, it, uh, it's, yeah, it just looks fa- fascinating and, and fantastic. Thank you. So another important thing to note is when I first started, I wanted to replicate their natural habitat. Mm. And then I had someone go, oh, I want a jungle theme for a bearded dragon. <laughs> and I'm like, really? So then I, I swallowed my pride, I did it. And that was what really drove home that it's actually the function that matters more than how it looks. Yes, yeah. Like, my jungle python is not from Thailand, but I love Thailand and have an enclosure that resembles Thailand with bamboo and a Thai Buddha head sort of buried down into the the substrate. Most of the plants in this setup next to me are not from the natural environment of where you would find a Darwin carp python, but I like how it looks and it functions. Yeah. Right. Don't get stuck on, I think there's, especially when you talk about bioactivity, there's sort of three ways that I look at it. There's naturalistic, there's bioactive, and then there's biotope. To me, bioactive is what you see most bioactive people doing. A lot of people argue that that's not bioactive because it's not, you're not using plants from the area. I think John has said that he doesn't really like referring to that as bioactive because he finds it difficult to create balance Mm. as far as the balance between the cleanup crew, the plants, the animal. So what he has described to me is what would be a biotope. Right. In, In the fish tank world, which I don't have much experience in, but it is something that I find quite interesting and watch a fair bit of content on. A biotope you're replicating down to the soil type rocks and plants, that exact area or environment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very few Um, people in the reptile world actually have a true biotope because of, you know. It would be so difficult to do. Yeah, yeah. Um. I can think of a few that have done it. Um, Scott Iper has done it in one of his uh, venomous enclosures. They actually went to the black soil plains and he took that soil and put it in an enclosure for that species. That's cool. Wet it down and then had the lights blasting without the species in there to create big, deep cracks in the soil. So it. Yes, yeah. Incredible enclosure. Um, but very, very few people have, have done that. To me, that's how I categorize the different types of naturalistic keeping. Um, But I don't think one is necessarily any better than the others. I think that all of them you should be still spot cleaning. At the end of the day, we're still putting these species into and these animals into an enclosure that is smaller than their natural environment. It's up to us to make sure that that is sanitary enough that they're not going to get sick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, for example, when you did the background, like the jungle theme background for the bearded dragon, what what, what yeah. did the end result look like? 
obviously i'm sure you tried to hit some fun you know i'm sure you that was your main goal hitting function and then the actual look was maybe a little bit off to some people's eye but what did it look like so it was from memory it was sort of a gray rock with um sort of mossy accents so great grays and greens um lots of natural timber and then i just focused on making sure that there was appropriate hiding spots mm-hmm. and climbing spots it was a small enclosure as well i'm pretty sure it was uh, either a four by two or a three by two um stack but that's what the customer wanted so it was up to me to make that suitable for the animal yeah yeah that makes sense cool well i think that's a pretty good rundown of of backgrounds is there anything else you want, would want to add about building backgrounds or and if anybody wants to actually purchase one of yours maybe you could quickly tell them how they can uh, order yeah so right now i run entirely as far as the business goes on instagram and facebook um, just through my my business page which is the copperhead customs bespoke backgrounds and habitat creation um I did find it was just Copperhead Customs, and then I found out that there was a custom car company that um, had the same name. So uh, <laughs> I made it more specific. But um, yeah, so you can contact me through there and and whatnot. We are in the process of um, putting together a website, which is going to be more than just a store. It's going to be or an ordering service because. I'm doing it in a way rather than an online store where you check out on the website, you send us an order form and we will send you back um, your invoice and pay it that way. And that was because the freight being that it's custom items was very, very difficult to calculate. Right. So so have you had any... Uh, uh, backgrounds get shipped out of Australia or like, I don't no, know. That, that would a be a lot of requests. Yeah. <laughs> um, That'd probably be too, too hard to do. Right. It would be extremely expensive. Right. 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 That's um, same as I've reached out to both Zen Habitats and, um, custom, is it custom habitats? Custom reptile so, habitats. Yeah. Yeah. And they won't send to Australia. Yeah. Cause it's just too expensive. Um, which it's funny because the guy from Custom Reptile Habitats, I'm pretty sure, is Australian. He, yeah, he, he is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Paul is from Australia, so we got to get Paul on that. I'll, I'll be talking to him next week, so maybe I'll, <laughs> I'll ask him how, how that's going. But yeah, he is from Australia. But but like you said, if it's going to quadruple the price <laughs> of the enclosure or quadruple the price of the background, you know, it, it would be tough. Yeah. I think, it, yeah, a lot of it's to do with that, but it's also like the warranties and stuff for different countries is very difficult. Um, so, yeah, probably the next thing I would like to talk about, and this is something that Chris brought up, is minimum uh, enclosure size. And and this, for anybody listening, this is from one, uh, episode 177 with Chris, yeah. also from Copper, his his Instagram is Copperhead yeah. Reptilia, so you, two Copperheads. I, but... I found that quite funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The battle of the copper hits. <laughs> but um, something he said was about like the breadline enclosure being a minimum, and it's an insane minimum of eight by four by four feet. And that's that's crazy. Like that won't even fit through a door to start with. <laughs> <laughs> but we're actually dealing with that at the minute here is the 
department have started auditing people saying their enclosures aren't deep enough. Um, I'm not sure exactly what calculations that they're using, but the expectations are not unsimilar to this. Right, and like the keeping standards that you have to follow in Australia to keep your like keeping license or well, they're keeping standards, but no one's ever heard of them before. Right, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, well, you're not doing the right things. So, like, well, tell me where it says that I should be doing this. Yeah. So yeah, that's something that's going on here, and I think that enclosure size matters as far as. Um, creating a functional space. Like, all right, let, let, let's go to the touchy topic of tubs, tubs mm-hmm. and racks. If you can create a tub that allows a carpet python to climb and climb properly, I'm talking an adult carpet python, a, a seven-foot animal, climb to its needs, then I'm all for you keeping me in a tub. Would be a pretty interesting tub. (laughs) Yeah, it'll be a wardrobe on sliders. Yeah, it's just. I think that it's it's not fair to deprive an animal of its natural instinctive behaviour. Like whether it doesn't matter what animal it is, it doesn't matter. It's just what's the difference between putting a cattle dog. In a courtyard, backyard. Yeah, exactly. Or a, yeah. Horse, or a horse in a standard backyard. Yeah. And I've got a horse. I've got a horse that's 700 kilo animal. And I can tell you right now, he wouldn't do well in the backyard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's really something that needs to be thought about. But I do think in a realistic way, I think the two extremes, either tub or an eight by four by four enclosure, is just a bit crazy. But I didn't so he said about his Bradley just sitting in the one spot and not doing much. And that sometimes the minimum is enough. And and to me, that's quite a dangerous thing to say because I know people are going to take that out of context. Mm-hmm. But how many animals, if you left the door of your enclosure open, how many animals are going to stay in that enclosure? Yeah, you will not find any of them in there in the morning. <laughs> they're all, or so pretty, if, maybe you give them a week, they're all going to be gone. If the minimum is enough and the animal doesn't need more than you're providing, then why would it escape its enclosure? Mm-hmm. It wouldn't. Yeah, it, it, it would stay where it feels secure and has its resources and water. It, it knows that it's got heat. It knows that it's got food and knows that it's got water. So why would it escape? Mm-hmm. Because heat, food, and water isn't enough. Yeah. So that was something that he said that sort of not irked me, but I, I just thought it was a bit dangerous because I know that people are going to go, well, so-and-so said that the minimum is enough, so I'm just going to do the minimum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think to, to see kind of both sides, I, I, like, I get what 
what you're saying as far as, you know, someone could easily take that out of context and say, yeah, this is, you know, we can keep in this little thing. And then from Chris's point of view, he was more or less saying, you know, there are people who are, you know, been keeping for a long time and have all these animals and now they're trying to upgrade, but they don't have the resources to do so. So do we make them feel like horrible people for keeping their animals in two small enclosures or do we let them know, you know, it's okay. There are ways that you can actually improve this setup, but then hopefully at some point you actually do uh, evolve and get a bigger enclosure down the road. You know, so it's kind of the striking that balance between helping people improve without yeah. making them feel like t- terrible people. And, and I think that was kind of the, the point, but at the same time yeah. you could imagine somebody go, yeah, the, you know, let's take the extreme of this. Yeah. I, I don't th- think anyone should be making anyone feel bad for, for how they keep, but I don't think people should be using excuses to keep inadequately. Mm-hmm. To, to stop their progression. Yeah. So I've, I've actually had a pet store or reptile store keeper say to me, oh, yeah, well, because we were chatting away and I was like, oh, yeah, we're seeing a big increase in people going for bigger enclosure sizes and that's really good to see. And he's like, no, we've seen the opposite. I'm like, okay. He's like, and besides, like, I've got 400 animals in my breeding facility, so it's not realistic for me to keep in four by two by two enclosures which yeah. to me for a lot of what it's keeping a four by two by two still isn't enough mm-hmm. but the first thing that came to my head is like well do you need really need to be having 400 animals yeah exactly like should 400 animals be being kept in inadequate scenario or situation just because you want that yeah i don't think that you being a breeder and needing to have this many animals to have a successful breeding colony is enough of a reason to justify the minimum being enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so, like who, who are you, are you looking out for yourself or are you looking out for the animal? Yeah. So something that I wrote here is, um, should the minimum standard be dictated by the keeper or the animal's behavior. Yeah. So something that I'm, I think would be a situation of an animal being enough, uh, the, the, the minimum being enough for an animal, is if you have a rescue bearded dragon that's got metabolic bone disease, I'm not going to want to put that animal in a four-foot-tall enclosure because if it falls, it is going to hurt itself. Yeah. I know... Uh, Chris and Stacey from Yarra Reptiles, they have a bearded dragon that has, and it's crazy, I've never seen it before, has allergies. You put that animal on loose substrate and it doesn't matter what it is, its eyes get infected and gunked up and it starts to struggle. So they have to keep that animal on AstroTurf to avoid that. And when it's on AstroTurf, it does fantastic. And they just have to keep up with making sure it stays clean. Yeah. So there are cases, if it's a a jag, jag carp python, okay, maybe the minimum is enough for a jag carp python because if I do more than the minimum, it suffers. It it triggers the neurological issues and it suffers. Mm Mm-hmm. So I think the animal should be dictating when the minimum is enough, not so much the needs of the keeper. Yeah. And again, it goes back to the individual animal, not the species that that animal falls within. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. 
And, and you made another point in, in your notes, which just, and this is something that I quite often see people talk about, is just the species activity, which certainly must play into enclosure size, right? If you have a high, uh, high metabolism, fast-moving colubrid that gets six feet tall or six feet long, and versus something that's you know is, we know is much more sedentary, I. I imagine there's an argument there to have a, you, you could potentially get away with a smaller enclosure for the more sedentary animal. But I always think, you know, a, a sedentary animal still will move a lot. It just will be less frequent. So there is still yeah. that obligation to provide the space. Yeah. It, 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 is it kind of a waste of space to have an animal maybe for the three times a year that it's going to roam around a, a much larger enclosure? Maybe, but maybe that's not an animal we should necessarily keep then. Maybe we should keep an animal that's you know that will use its entire enclosure if you don't want to waste an entire room of space for that like you know blue moon event but also is it a waste of space if it looks beautiful and it's a feature mm-hmm. exactly if you if you've got a bare enclosure and it's boring to look at and it's just a white melamine box with newspaper on the bottom and a water bowl sure that might be a waste of space when the animal doesn't move around much. But if you've got something that looks like a slice of nature in a box and is a display in itself, and the animal is a part of that but not the main feature, mm-hmm. then you're going to feel like that's less of a wasted space. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if it's a beautiful piece of furniture that you know gives you peace looking at it, it looks like nature. And for that four or five times a year that the animal goes out and explores, that can be a fun event too, to see an animal that never comes out to actually use the enclosure. And then you know that, you know, yeah, like you said, it's not a waste. It's not, it's not a waste of space. It's something that you can enjoy and it can enjoy when it needs to. Exactly. There's like, that's part of why I like keeping in a bioactive way is because, oh, you're, look, there's a, there's a beetle climbing mm-hmm. up the, the log. Yeah, or, yeah. Like, I don't remove spiders from my enclosures. Um, and I also have no fungus gnats because <laughs> the spiders eat them. Yeah, that's but smart. You'll see like every now and then, oh, look, there's a new spider web that's, that's coming. And you've got this piece, this little ecosystem going on that's constantly evolving and changing. Like I get a kick out of seeing new growth from plants. And so there's a lot more to it than in my style of keeping and in my mind than just the animal in the box. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. I think that that's a really important feature and, and it gets you a little bit more engaged as a keeper as well when you're really, you know, paying attention to that, the, the, the big picture of, of keeping, not just the, you know, the blank empty enclosure. Yeah. All right. So the next thing I've got on here that I wanted to talk about is, because this was something else that Chris brought up that I think is very true and important is as a business owner, I want to cultivate an industry because the industry here is much, much, much smaller than the rest of the world. And for a long time, that's been said that running a reptile business in Australia isn't possible. I don't agree with that. Maybe it was that way once upon a time. But most of the schools now have reptile programs as part of their science programs. Mm. So I think now is the time to really start pushing for better education, for more knowledge, for more accessibility to the reptile hobby for young people. Now, something Chris said was, well, if our standard is a zoo 
style enclosure, which is what I've gone for because I like going to the zoo and it's even better when it's in my bedroom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, how can a 10-year-old, we'll say 10 because that's when I started, be expected to achieve that? And I think that's perfectly fair. But I also don't think that it's necessarily an excuse for the minimum being the most, like the minimum being enough. Maybe for the first year, yes, like start with your minimum, get your feet wet. But it shouldn't be this expectation of, oh, well, it's a kid, so... Don't worry about the fact that they've been told to feed their snake every week mm-hmm. and not been told when that changes. And now they have a two or three year old animal that's pushing six foot. But the minimum's enough, so we're still keeping in a three foot enclosure. Right. So there's a lot of this is where I think when I look at how I did it. My dad built something to create a suitable habitat. Like it had the shelf and all the rest of it. So I think that if you go on Facebook Marketplace and type in wardrobe, I did it yesterday and the first four that came up were free. Yeah, people just want to get rid of them. A chest of drawers, same thing. You can convert furniture into enclosures at a very, very minimal price. If you're willing to do something DIY, then you can, one, it's an activity for the adult and child to do together. Two, it gives the ability to upsize up as you go along without spending crazy money. Three, you're ending up building towards better animal husbandry. Yeah. Because you're going to want to do that research to do the project. So, so it's more of a, yeah. How do you get someone into the hobby who's young without overwhelming them with it? Like, I think the example that we had used in that podcast was, you know, you wouldn't start a 10 year old with a saltwater marine tank because they're surely going to kill everything because there's just not enough experience there. So, how do you get them in, but then also make sure you've set the expectation that, that there needs to be this progression pretty much immediately as you start. And part of that progression is doing your research, understanding what the animal needs. And, and I think the point that you're making is that comes from the parent. You can't really expect that to come from the child. They don't have a concept of money or, you know, how to acquire these things. But if, if you are a parent that's going to buy your child a reptile, you need to understand that it's not just this purchase that matters. It's the purchase and then how you help your child care for that animal over time. And, and a big part of it could be building enclosures, helping them create space. I mean, I, I remember doing this with with my dad as well, built getting enclosures and setting things up for, you know, things that we'd find in the yard. And, and you're right. It can be a really fun experience for both the child and the parent. And it's teaching the yep. child that the animal is more than just the, the, the thing that you brought at home from the pet store in. Yeah, exactly. And you don't have to be a carpenter to do it. You don't have to do what Brad from Brad's bioactive builds does and bust yeah. out the power tools and make the, like, what he does is amazing and I talk to him almost every day. Uh, but you don't have to go that far. 
but there is a realistic starting point. There are so many tutorials. And if you do the research into the products that you use, you can build a fantastic habitat. And you might look at it like the first backgrounds I build, I look at now, and they're nothing compared to what I do now. Yeah. So maybe once every year or once every couple of years, you go, I want to redo it. And you pull it all out and you start again. Yeah. Yeah, I, I did um, I did that. I, I, I used shelves and converted them into enclosures and I did that without power tools in the living room of an apartment building. So there was no exactly. table saw, there was no thing. I mean it's it's harder and it's not super fast, but you can definitely do it and and uh, it's it's not it's not a substantial amount of work where it's so intimidating that nobody could do it. No. And it's more than possible to do, as you've just said, like you did it yourself. There's plenty of ways to learn how to do it, whether it be YouTube, I've seen Reddit files that go through the whole step-by-step process. There's no excuse to not do it, really. And I think it is up to the parents. It's the parents' responsibility to look at that and go, okay, well, this isn't just an animal that you can just oh, well, it's in a box, I don't need to think about it. Especially yeah. when they live for 25 plus years. Yeah, exactly. So it's the parent understanding the commitment of, and making sure it's something that the child actually wants, you know, that it's not, the, yeah. they're just on a on a snake kick this month because they've been watching snake videos, you know, it's something that they're actually committed to, but, but really understanding that if you're buying this type of thing for your child, this is a, a lifetime commitment essentially. And it's something that you need to help them with beyond the initial purchase. When I first got in, I originally wanted to be at a dragon. Mm. My parents made me research what I was saying that I wanted. And we made a decision based on that research. We didn't get a be at a dragon because my parents decided that it was going to be too much of a responsibility to stay on top of UVB and all of that, all of the the ins and outs. Like bearded dragons are quite complex animals uh, from a keeper standpoint. Mm-hmm. Like they Compared get labeled as this beginner animal, but unless the parent is going to take that responsibility and stay on top of things like how often the UVB should be changed or monitored and all of the rest of it, then I don't really see how a 10-year-old is going to do that on their own. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I think the the parents, if you're going to let your kids get into reptiles, the parents need to take more responsibility. I think that it's a fantastic thing to get into. And I think with schools starting to incorporate reptile husbandry and reptile programs into their science programs, things are going to progress and probably quite quickly. Um, and that, that's exciting and it's something that should happen, but it should it's not something that should just be taken lightly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something that learning is a part of the hobby. Totally. Like, people get dogs, but they don't learn about different types of dogs. They don't study wolves. They don't study like the behavior, pack mentality, things like that. But 
maybe they should. You probably end up with less aggressive dogs and more understanding around dogs if they Absolutely. Did. And less dogs in shelters that people can't keep anymore because they don't know how to control their behavior and all those different things. I, yeah, I was thinking about that the other day, how little information goes into buying a dog. You buy your dog, you go to the pet store, you buy the dog food, and uh, you're set. Where really, you know, it should be just as complex as any other animal. But I think people get used to the cat and the dog as a pet, and then they just transfer that to reptiles. And, you know, it's as simple as buying and then feeding, and then you're done. And really, it shouldn't be that simple for either of those examples. No. Um, And yeah, I think that that is changing. And I think that's a really, really good thing that it's changing. Yeah. Um, Something else that I I thought when he was, when Chris was saying, um, like, it's just unobtainable, it's too expensive for young keepers to expect that style of keeping is, which I don't think it is because I think I started from a broke point and I managed it. Um, But I think that if you look at it, how many of these kids have um, Xboxes, Playstations, computers, right? Well, there's a five, $600 investment. iPhone. iPhone mobile phones, video games that $50, sixty, $100 each, um, subscriptions to video games, all of the add-ons. If you're willing to buy your kid hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars of video game stuff, then you should be willing to spend that on animal care. Or at least understand that that's the commitment you're making. And if you don't want to do that, then, then you shouldn't be buying them an animal. Exactly. Like working in um, in stock feed, we have people come in and they buy, do you have Supercoat as a brand over there as dog food? I don't know. Okay, I'm so not up on my dog foods. My wife works in veterinary, so she knows a lot about nutrition. And we have people come in and they buy Supercoat even though they know that it is not a high-quality food. And their reason for doing it is like, yeah, well, I don't want to pay $150 a bag. Right. For a 20 for a 20 kilo bag. It's like, well, should you have the animal in? Yeah. It's, it's like, a good question. If it's part of owning animals, it's a privilege to own animals. You don't not take your animal to the vet because you're like, oh, I don't want to spend the money. Like my wife and I have credit cards specifically because we have a lot of animals. Yeah. Just in and case. if the animal needs vet care, well, guess what? That comes before feeding ourselves. Yeah. Like keeping animals is expensive. It's well, and that's why that. one of the things that I came after that conversation or came to me after the conversation that I had with Chris was thinking. We, we maybe we ought to start moving these like quote unquote starter pets into a completely different group uh, of animals that are much smaller, you know, like anoles and, and things that just stay smaller so that you're not having to spend a whole bunch of money onto a big enclosure with lots of lighting. Can you get it into the 12 by 12 by 18 or whatever the small exoterra is? Uh, I can't, I can't remember the 12 by 12 by yeah 18, I think. And, you know, that, that's an affordable thing. You can get the lighting for it. That's relatively affordable. The animal isn't a huge expense. The feed bill isn't a huge expense. That, to me, makes a lot more sense than saying a bearded dragon is a 
starter pet where it's like, okay, a four by two is pretty small. So maybe we should go to a six and then you have to have crazy lighting and all. And the, the animal is, you know, 18 inches long. It, so, so in many ways, it's almost like it's a, it's a mistake of what we classify as beginner species. Yeah. So bearded dragons are a really good example because the most common recommended size for a bearded dragon enclosure in Australia is a four by two. Right. To me, this is an animal that I know people that find them in the wild and they're up the top of trees. There was one up the top of like a power pole, light pole thing. They're on top of fences. Um, They're running away from monitor lizards. And you're saying that an enclosure that it can barely take two steps before it has to turn around is adequate. Yeah. It, that that's that's plenty for an adult animal. I mean, to me, it's not like an animal that active should be able to do more than take two or three steps before it's got to turn around. Yeah, yeah. Instead, it sounds more like uh, an appropriate amount of room space that someone's willing to give up to an animal. You know, exactly. And again, do you need? 25 different reptiles or should you just have one or two? I, mm-hmm. When I started buying more, I looked at the space I had, looked at the minimum that I wanted to keep an adult in, which is a the minimum I decided on, and I've since changed my mind and it's gone up since then, is a 4 by 4 by 2 Um. And I was like, all right, well, I'm not going to get more animals than I can fit those enclosures. Right. And that's how I decided what I was going to get and how many I was going to get. I didn't buy the reptiles and then go, where am I going to put them? Yes, yeah. Which is what happens. If I was to get these animals, where am I going to put them? And what's going to be my minimum standard? Mm-hmm. And then my minimum is above minimum. Well, and it's so hard. I mean, because of the culture that we have, you have the YouTube culture, the the expo culture. And I talked about this on the podcast not that long ago, I think. It's just the act of going to an expo and being around people who have a, a common hobby as you. You want to get into it more. Like when I came home from the expo in Toronto, I, I had this like just deep want to like start a breeding project and I was like getting into this like almost like manic thing of like I'm just gonna I don't know where I'm gonna put it I was like willing to just I was going into pet stores thinking like if I find something interesting I'm just gonna buy it which is so against my entire philosophy of the podcast and just myself in general but I was in that mindset that we all get into but thankfully work started again and life got too busy you know the summertime was over so i eventually got back into my normal schedule and now i almost every day i think to myself thank god i didn't do something stupid during the last week of august when i had this free time thinking that i was going to just jump into a project because i was in that wanting to buy something but now i have no time like i barely have time to get the podcast out and it would have been so dumb but i think if you're in the right place, right time, you're going to pull the trigger on something that you not necessarily should just because you're in that state and now you're stuck with it in a way. And I think like my wife working in veterinary, it's a veterinary clinic and a shelter and um, they saw, especially after COVID, a big spike 
and resurrected animals because yeah. people bought all these animals and that when they were at home they wanted the companionship they wanted the fun but when they've got to go back to working eight hours a day they didn't have the time anymore and they're just yeah. like oh well to me we don't we've never moved on an animal mm-hmm. yeah every animal we've ever had has been for its entire lifespan yeah yeah me too um which that's our personal stand. I can understand why people do move on animals, but you shouldn't be getting an animal with the mindset of, oh, well, if it gets too much, I'll just move it on. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can't, you can't predict how your life is going to unfold. There could be scenarios. There could be scenarios for either of us where we have to get rid of our animals. Who knows, right? That could be what the future holds. But if that's your starting point, that's not right. In saying that, like I've always put my animals first. I, when I was in my, what was I, I was about 19. I ended up homeless and I had a cat at the time and that cat ate before I did. Wow. And I had, I had that cat through being homeless to the day that it died at 16 years old. That's amazing. So it can be done. Like it just depends on what you are capable and willing to do. Yeah. And if you're not capable, then yes. Okay. The, the responsible thing is to give it to someone that is capable. But you should be having a good hard think of if you're capable and if your situation is appropriate Yeah. before getting an animal. Definitely. Um, what else have I got here? All right, let's talk about Let's talk about the reptile hobby and how we conduct ourselves as a community because I see a lot of bullying that goes on on these groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I want to do as I expand my online presence and um, and my position in the community. I want to be an advocate for anti-bullying because I think it's just completely unnecessary. The amount of people that I see just get slammed on these Facebook groups for trying to do research. Mm-hmm. They've got an animal. They set it up how they thought it should be. It's not panning out how they thought it would, whether it be the pet shop told them what to do or whatnot. And the response they get for asking for help is, well, you should have done your research. So what do you think they're trying to do? Yeah. They're on there asking a question to better their situation. That, by definition, is research. And where else are they supposed to do this research? Especially when experienced keepers aren't posting advice in these groups because they just get drowned out by opinionated people and bullies. Right. Um, Another thing that I see a lot and – this uh, some people might disagree with me here. Like I, I watch um, Chandler and Tyler Nolan and all of the the Florida boys that keep venomous, and yes, they do some crazy stuff, and they cop a lot of flack and bullying online and on podcasts um, for what they do, and yet these same people that are saying that it's irresponsible, they're setting a bad example, they. They're just doing it for attention. These same people idolize Steve Irwin. Mm-hmm. 
If you look up Steve Irwin on Google and type in Steve Irwin holding venomous snake, see what comes up. And these people, oh yeah, well that's different because he was he wasn't doing it for YouTube likes. He was doing it to stay on TV mm-hmm. because if he was on TV and people were watching, he could raise money to build his conservation and zoo efforts. Yeah. I remember my dad, while Steve Irwin was on TV, saying the exact same thing that these guys are saying. He's asking to get bit. He's going to get himself killed. Yeah. But no one was saying, well, he's going to encourage people to go and jump on the back of a crocodile. Right. And was... con- considering I can go on our reptile classified page right now and buy a saltwater crocodile baby for $400. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's not unrealistic to think that that could encourage people to do that sort of stuff. If you disagree, I'm not saying that I agree with what they do, but I have learned a lot through what they do. I watched Dingo Dinkleman, and I've met him in person and talked to him quite a few times. I watched him on one of their videos handling a green mamba, and he said the best way to keep a green mamba calm is by giving it somewhere to climb to. Now, one of my jungles is very, very feisty. I use that same technique. I used the spin redirect technique and gave her something to look at that was up high. And instead of wanting to bite me and focusing on me, she started wanting to go up. Mm. So, and these guys are also putting in the front of all of their videos, don't do what we do. They have disclaimers saying, what we do is extremely dangerous and can get you killed. We have lost fingers doing what we do. They don't hide any of that. They don't make it look like it's going to be this fantasy, amazing thing and everyone should do it. Um, But I just think it's hypocritical to say that Steve Irwin's amazing, but anyone else that's essentially doing the same thing is bad because it's on YouTube and not TV. Yeah, the Um, behavior is the same. The other thing is, how many people do you know that have spent $10,000 plus building a walk-in enclosure because the snake is enormous? Mm-hmm. Like these guys are, sure, don't kiss a cobra on the face, <laughs> but they're also doing things that are amazing. Um, so the other thing is, if you disagree with what someone's doing, lead by example. Go, all right, I don't think people should be free handling venomous. It can be done safer. You should use hooks. So post videos on how to handle venomous snakes properly, safely with a hook. Yeah. Like you're not setting a good example by bullying. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it, it doesn't have... The, it doesn't have the result quite often that you're hoping it has. Sometimes it has the opposite result. It'll cause people to double down. You know, Obviously, Chandler just recently had an accident where he actually got bit, and that was one of the things that he came out with was maybe I should do more demonstrating proper handling and you know, those yeah. sort of things. But I think you're right. Is There's an entertainment factor to the YouTube channels, and there's an entertainment factor to Steve Irwin stuff back in the day because it was TV was the only medium, and it's the same... 
it is very much the same behavior to hold it, hold attention. And it's just what seems to work to hold people's attention, whether or not it's the right thing to do. I don't know, but, but you're right. There could be something hypocritical if you have Steve Irwin in your bio as a, as a, your hero, and then, you know, having an issue with what Chandler's doing, considering how similar it is. Well, it's not so, like you can have an issue with it, but you don't need to be voicing that issue publicly and, and bullying publicly. Um, one of the things I posted on one of the videos and was like, at what point, considering Chandler is a registered business, at what point is it slander? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so if you disagree, I'm not saying you have to agree. I'm not saying that you have to say that free handling venomous is the best way to do it or if it's right or wrong. If you disagree with something, lead by example. I am not a fan of tub keeping. So I lead by example of putting how I like to keep out there. And it has encouraged other people to keep that way. Mm. It has a more positive effect. Yeah. The growth of my business has been 100% organic through me channeling. I got this from a, a business guy named Gary V. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that one of the most successful business tactics as far as marketing goes is to reverse engineer human behavior. My business was grown on the fact that people looked at my setups and were jealous and wanted the same. Yeah. Jealousy is a human behavior. Yeah. They like what they saw. They wanted it for themselves, which is jealousy perfect. and envy. They're like, oh, I want that. And the more that we post pictures of big setups, the more people will go, oh, how much for something the same as that? Yeah, yeah. How much for something similar to this? Or you'll so inspire somebody you, to do it themselves. If you want people to change and do things differently, inspire. Yeah. Inspire. Don't, don't bully. Bullying achieves nothing. It doesn't make us look any better. It just breeds negativity. It doesn't fix anything. And... It's just a waste of time. And it's easier and it to bully. Attention, it draws attention away from the people that are trying to educate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it pulls that attention over there uh, because people are, especially on social media, the negative side is so addicting for people. It just pulls people right into that area. And it's, it is actually easier to bully somebody then go and do a giant six foot enclosure and do your own custom background and make a nice picture of it. Like obviously that takes more work. It has a more positive effect, but it's not as easy. It's not as clearly as easy. It's just like putting a post out, calling somebody out, but it doesn't, that doesn't help us. What does help us, like you said, try to inspire somebody to do better. Well, put it this way. You will not find a single post in the two or three years that I've been doing this of me turning around to a rat keeper and going, I'm better because I keep like this. Mm-hmm. It won't happen. I don't even think about my business competition. I just do what I love to do to the best of my ability and try and set a good example. Yeah. And let the cards fall where they're going to fall. And considering my business has grown exponentially, I think that's proof to show that it works. Absolutely. And like when you've got channels like Snake Discovery putting out really good information and examples, but they're getting drowned out by hate campaigns of other channels, 
to me, that's irresponsible. Mm. Good point. Instead of going, Chandler's an idiot, he deserved to get bit, rah, rah, rah. Like, even he admits that he got too comfortable. Go, here's a channel where they use hooks to avoid getting bit. Here's yeah. a, a handblood that has been working with with venomous species for 20 years, and he, this is how he does it, and this is how he's avoided getting bit. Like, yeah, just bullying and negativity, it needs to stop. It, it doesn't achieve anything, and it is doing more damage than good. Yes, yeah, it definitely doesn't make us look like we're a very effective group and it becomes well, easier especially to... when you guys are getting attacked by activist groups. And exactly. Whatnot. Yeah, okay. exactly. You've got a bunch of people acting like, well, <laughs> acting like politicians, really <laughs> <laughs> Act, acting like teenagers, bullying each other, arguing over silly things, not setting a good example. Like you're not how are you going to stand up and go no we we deserve to be able to do this because it does good things when they can turn around and go really because all we're seeing is bullying yeah yeah exactly we're, yeah you guys can't even get seeing, along in your own community we we're, we're throwing examples of bad husbandry and animal keeping at you and on top of that you act like a bunch of children <laughs> yeah yeah how it doesn't give us a great right? Yeah, we don't have a great foundation to stand from. And yeah, sometimes I'm thankful that I'm just too, I'm quite often way too busy to get involved in, in the drama. So people have to kind of like update me on what's going on. I'm like, oh, I didn't see that. But if uh, right. that, that's it, a good caveat of something that I want to start bringing, and it's something that I want to do on my YouTube channel, but I'm trying to juggle way too many things all at once, is taking groups, uh, taking questions from Facebook groups and interviewing. I'd like to do it as a roundtable sort of a thing, but answering those groups either on YouTube or on podcast to put that information out there in a way that they don't have to compete with people's opinions. Mm, that's cool. So one that I saw this morning was my snake is glass surfing. These are my temperatures were glue. It was like, it was a carpet python. It was 34 degree basking spot. Um, plenty of clutter. Why, why is it glass surfing? So, if you had to answer that question, how would you answer that? What, what could be some possible reasons? Well, it really depends with glass surfing. I mean, the first thing I would look at is just the overall setup of the enclosure. Is there enrichment in there? Have you set up the enclosure to make it appropriate for the species? And and quite often, putting something novel into an enclosure will help an animal, you know, reduce its glass surfing. Or I have an animal that will glass surf time to time, and she just needs out of her enclosure to to explore the room. You know, there there's several different ways that you could you could attack that that problem. Yeah. Okay. So. The first thing that came to mind for me was they didn't put the size of the enclosure. So it could mm. be enclosure size. But the other thing that came to mind was enrichment. Yeah. So with your animal, for instance, it wants to come out and explore and, and get that little bit of enrichment, and then it's good for another however long. Um, another one that you see a lot is what, what size food should I be feeding my animal? Yes, it's, yeah. And how often, which is is a big one um, for me. 
So how do you feed, like, let's go with calf pythons because since that's what I keep and I can then give you what I, how I feed. How how do you feed your jungle? How old is it? How big is it? What and how often are you feeding it? Uh, are you asking for me? Like mine yeah. personally? Yeah. So my, uh, how he is about five and a half and I will always give him a bit of a fast in the winter. So he'll take like two months off in the winter. So right off the top, there's at least two to like, you know, 10 weeks of him not eating. And then it's just like literally kind of like what you were saying earlier, very random, you know, anywhere from uh, every two weeks to eight weeks, you know, throughout the summer, it'll just, I might skip two or three meals and it's, it's there. The schedule is to have no schedule at all, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So what size food are you feeding? And, and I, how big is your, your carpet? Yeah, he is, he's probably about four feet long. I have had, it's been a while since I've had him on the scale. That's one thing. Once you put them into an enriched environment, getting a carpet python out to put him on a scale is a whole other thing, but I'll feed I'm him. Uh, a single one of my animals. Yeah. No, it's, yeah, it, it's tough. Um, when he's taking rats, he'll eat small rats. So they're like, I think they're around probably about 70 grams. And then when he's refusing rats, he'll sometimes go through that. I'll give him chicks. Chicks are around like 35, 40 and sometimes I'll give him two if he's if he's, if it's going to be like you know a couple months between. So usually okay. around that. That's pretty good. Um, so I feed generally. Again, I don't do a schedule, but generally it's around about the three weeks mark mm-hmm. um, for my. So I've got animals ranging from under a year up to twenty five years. So my youngest one eats two to three weeks. Uh, the older ones that are up over a year are generally around a four-week mark. And then the oldest two, which would be four years and over, are eating sort of once every two months. Well, mm. once every two months for the younger one and then the big guy once every three months. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, that's ranging. I, I vary diet a lot. Um but yeah, that's ranging in size. I generally go for a bulge, a feed bulge that will last at least a week. Really? Okay. So you feed fairly large then. I mean, I know pythons in the wild eat huge meals typically. Yeah. Yeah. So either I'll feed a couple of small items or I will feed yeah a meal that you can still like by the end of the week, it's starting to disappear. Mm. Like starting to look more normal again, but I, yeah, yeah. I've seen people feed. Oh well, the bulge is gone in two days. To me, I mean, if you're gonna feed like that, you probably feed a lot closer together. So mm. if you you see people feed every single week, like if you're you're feeding something small enough that it's not showing a bulge, then that that carbon python is going to be hungry still. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not necessarily going to need to eat and you are at risk of growing it very, very fast and getting fat if you feed that way. The thing that I see a lot of people do is they get told, oh, yeah, you've got a baby carpet python, bought it from a reptile shop. They told me to feed every week, but they never tell them when that changes. Yes, exactly. So they get stuck on that pattern. Yeah, so all of a sudden they've been feeding a week up until three years old. It's like, well, that, that's a crazy amount when you're feeding a large rat. Totally, yeah. Exactly. I also like to feed a lot of bird, bird mm. prey. 
because um, that's less fatty. Yeah. So when it's when it's available, I'll generally do a two birds, like one feed bird, next feed bird, then a rat. Mm, yeah. Then then a break and then repeat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I love mixing bird in too. Quite often I'll kind of do birds in the early part of the feeding season and then getting closer to like my fasting period, I'll throw a few more rats in there, a little more fatty meals. And then typically that's how I cycle. But I think it's just good to have that uh, that varied diet. So is that something, and I, I hate to do this, I'm glad that we started 30 minutes early, but I, I have to run right away. And I know you probably, we yes, both have so to go to work. <laughs> so we'll definitely have to have you back on at some point because, uh, you know, somehow we both have to go to work right away. But is that, are those that you were kind of mentioning like a podcast or a video, is that something that people will eventually be able to find on your YouTube channel? Yeah, that's, that's the aim. I want to, so through the VHS, which is the Victorian Herptological Society, I've met a lot of really fantastic people. And I'm hoping to use that sort of networking to yeah, release like a roundtable discussion where we take maybe five questions from Facebook groups and get an experienced keeper's point of view on it. That's cool. And you could eventually turn that into just something where people submit questions to you and then... Yeah. Because they're going to be comfortable, like you said, people are going to post on Facebook and they get lit up. They might as well just send it to somebody who they know is going to answer it respectfully and in good faith. Well, that's something that I noticed when I had a brief look this morning for today's episode and throwing those couple of questions at you was that most people asking these questions, they're posting anonymously because they don't want to get bullied. Yes. Or they put qualifiers within the question, please don't bully me. Like They're just begging yeah. to just get an answer without getting destroyed, which is sad. Sorry. And people, yeah, instead of seeing it for what it is of these people trying to do research, they just want to slam them. And mm. It's unnecessary. And, yeah, I'd like to create an, a more – I'd like to create an outlet where you can get more experienced information out there to create a resource for researching. Yeah, yeah. Because I feel like that's lacking. Like when I started, it was go to the library talk to talk to the the breeder see what they say um that was how you did research but it took a lot more effort to put a book out than it did to put a facebook post up exactly exactly and the accessibility of information is a blessing and a curse because it's allowed people to put incorrect information out on the internet, which is now like you hear it all the time. I, I offer for people to private message me and ask me questions if they're having problems. Yes. Yeah. And they're like, oh, yeah, there's so much conflicting information. It's like, how yeah. do I know who to believe? I said to my mate, all right, well, I wanted, to, it's a real shame that experienced people don't put in on these things. Like, yeah, but how do these new keepers know that they're experienced? Exactly. When there's you, no way when to you've tell. Got 500 posts comments on the post exactly yeah so if i can do a round table where people go all right this is who i am this is what i do this is how long i've been keeping and then throw some questions around then i think it's a good way to put some good information out there and then these people don't have to deal with arguing with 10 year olds on facebook <laughs> yeah I love that idea. Well, Damien, that sounds like a fantastic way to wrap up the episode. And I, I, I will definitely have you back on because I think there's so much more we could talk about. And maybe as you get closer to actually doing that on, on YouTube, we could we could talk about it on the show. Um, can you make sure everybody knows the the name of Instagram where they can find you as well as the YouTube channel? 
Yeah, so all of the platforms, it's Copperhead Customs, uh, two words, uh, bespoke backgrounds and custom habitats. Awesome. And of course, I'll make sure that's in the show notes for everybody. And again, thank this you so much. Yeah, you got the the C and that backwards C, and uh, yep. yeah, it, and I, I I've shared his his stuff on on my Instagram as well before, so you you probably find him just by going through my followers as well or people I follow. And uh, like, like I said, again, this is an awesome conversation. We, we we for those listening, we actually started thirty minutes earlier than we were planning, uh, which means that we started at six thirty a.m. Damien's time, and uh, we still ran out of time. So <laughs> yeah, th- there's uh, there's more to talk about, but I th- this was an absolute pleasure. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me and thank you for everything that you do. I've learned so much listening to your show and it's been a real pleasure to get the opportunity to come on myself. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for listening. Okay, that is the end of that episode. Damien, thank you so much for joining me. Again, I think we could easily record another one. Uh, it's it's rare that I'm like, okay, we got to cut it short because I think both... Actually, by the time we finished talking, Damien was already like three, three or four minutes late for his work and uh, I had to run off to go to my work as well. So it was, you know, between the two of us, we were going to be late. So anyway, that just shows you how much discussion there is and I definitely want to have another one on, with Damien on at some point in the future. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. Hopefully you got some value out of that episode, especially if you're somebody who's working on new enclosures i'm sure you found some of the tips and tricks that damien talked about to be very helpful and and hopefully one day damien does start his round table idea on youtube because i think that would be a huge positive for our community if you enjoy the podcast and you're looking for more information you can head to animalsathomenetwork.com there you can find the show notes and all the episodes that have been published under the animals at home network banner are there if you'd like to support the show financially you can do that by going to customreptilehabitats.com supporting there they are sponsored the show so if you support them you're automatically supporting me you can get to them by going through the affiliate link in either the youtube description or at the link in my show notes if you do make a purchase using that link a commission comes back to me at no extra cost to you you can also join us over on patreon.com slash animals at home for as little as a 75 cents ish an episode you can help support the show and really help me continue to do this this is a tremendous amount of work as seen you know through the fall when i got very busy started to have to sparse out uh, you know space out episodes a little bit but we're starting to fall back in line here it's a lot of work to do the podcast i absolutely love having the conversations with people but all the work surrounding it it really takes a lot out of me so any support can really goes a long way to helping me continue to produce the show I think that's it for this week, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in and I will see you in the next one.